When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morrow, everybody. This is the other side of midnight. It's going to be a big day. It's a fun day. It's Friday. Fridays are always fun. For us, it's pizza day. I believe today is also National Beer Day, which is also something that tends to be pretty fun. It's going to be, for those of us that like doing things outside, going to be a little warmer today than it's been. About time. Uh, Enough of this uh, dreariness and dampness and coldness. And uh, I'm excited that uh, we are rapidly approaching cigar weather. Mike get up to 60 degrees today, but the real reason that so many of you are excited is because it is time for The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank Ask Frank Anything Ask Frank Anything anything. Boom! I know a lot of people I've been getting text messages, I'm not exaggerating all day, saying, oh, big day, I'm excited, it's Ask Frank Anything Day. Uh, I will do my best to answer any question you have on any subject at 800-848-WABC. Questions about film, television, books, business, radio, the business of radio, cocktails, advice, my personal history, pro wrestling, gambling, Atlantic City, local politics, national politics, restaurants, New York, the criminal justice system, aliens, the mob, hypothetical questions, my personal preferences, relationships, baseball, big day for baseball, especially for those of us that are Mets fans, the culture at large, religion, foreign policy, or absolutely anything else that you can think of or you think I have an opinion about. Now, uh, there are a couple, there are no rules with Ask Frank Anything. You can ask whatever you want. Now, we, we are going to give a prize of a The Other Side of Midnight t-shirt to whomever Matley determines has the best question. And so we encourage creative questions, questions that we haven't heard a hundred times before. We also discourage trivia questions, unless it's really cleverly done. Like one time a guy called and he wanted to play the thousand dollar minute with me. And uh, I was knocked out pretty early. So, I mean, that's kind of creative. If it's going to be a trivia question let it be creative um also we don't want a monologue where your voice raises just at the end oh isn't uh lawrence o'donnell the worst tv anchor of all time and he does he's so horrible and he does this and he's inaccurate and he's corrupt and he's um you know he's taking bribes to say nice things about certain politicians that none of that is true i'm just making that up uh don't you agree that's a lame question So uh, we like questions that will lead to some discussion. So whatever you have questions about, I hopefully will have at least a few answers. 800-848-9222. Now, one question I did want to follow up on from last week is a fella called in. We didn't get him. We didn't get him on the air because I wasn't sure I was I could talk about this. And uh, a fella called in and asked how much money I make. And um, 
I we didn't take him because I wasn't sure I could answer that. And I did check. I am not able to disclose the details of my uh, contract with the radio station. So sorry about that. But trust me, it's not that much money. I am firmly within the the meaty part of the curve for the middle class. So uh, whatever whatever it, it, you think it is, whatever that average is, somewhere around there, that's right about where I am. Uh, eight, I wish I could tell you more. 800-848-9222. Happy to answer your questions on any subject. Bill is in Purchase, New York. Hello, Bill. Uh, Bill, I'm going to put you on hold because your your phone is screwy as screwy. I want to see if you can get to a better area. And by the way, I do want to tell people if you're interested in Batman, you're going to want to listen to my interview view with Michael Uslan coming up at one thirty. Uh, excuse me, at four thirty. He is the man that brought Batman back to the movies. Uh, it seems hard to believe now, but he's written this great book called Batman's Batman, and I've actually stolen a whole bunch of tips from this book about how I can be even better on the radio. But he tells the story of how he brought Batman back. It's really interesting. If you're interested in learning about the Supreme Court, save your questions uh, because I'm going to talk with Eric Siegel, my fa- one, of, one of my favorite law professors, to talk about the Supreme Court with at 3.30. And then um, at 2.30, we're going to do an alien update when we speak with David Beatty, uh, David Beatty, actually. He is the... He is the documentarian that made a wonderful documentary on on YouTube called uh, Encounters of the at the USS Nimitz. And it's all about the USS Nimitz encountering those tic-tac-shaped objects. So we're going to get into that. 800-848-WABC. We're going to try and go, go again to Bill in purchase. Hello, Bill. Uh, can you hear me? I got you, Bill. Go ahead. What's your question? Oh, okay. My question is... Bill, I'm sorry, it's just not going to work out. If you want to try and call back from a landline, I can't hear you. Uh, Neil on Staten Island, what's your question? Yes, Frank, uh, I've always been curious. I, I spoke to Dominic before. They said he's filling in for Greg Kelly later on. I know Curtis goes in for a lot of different people whenever there's an opening or someone's out. You've done it also. Uh, I know you're at the salary, Frank, but when you fill in for other hosts, do they pay you extra, or is it like you got to bite the bullet and, and take one for the team? You, you know, it's funny. I just asked Dominic that same question uh, because there is no uniform rule to uh, to whether you get paid or not. I think some people do get paid. Uh, I've never gotten paid for filling in. It's all part of my salary here. I, I mean, I'm I'm thrilled to do it. I'm thrilled to get the extra exposure. And uh, I don't think Curtis gets paid anything extra. I remember when Mark Simone was here and he would fill in, uh, he would get paid uh, for every, every, he would have his regular Saturday show, both the Saturday morning show and the Saturday evening show. And then he would get paid each time he filled in during the week, which sometimes could be quite a bit there were days where he'd fill in for curtis and kuby and and then do uh, uh john gambling hannity levin so um so he would get paid on a per diem basis the short answer is it all depends on what sort of deal you've worked out but in my case no everything's included in curtis's case i think he doesn't get paid anything extra either thank you frank thank you neil 800-848-wabc that's 800-848-9222 greg is in new jersey hello greg uh, Frank, uh, you got sentenced to 20 years. Oh, boy. Minimum be- before parole, minimum 20 years, you have a chance to break out. 50-50 chance. Become a fugitive. Are you going to take it? Am I in uh, federal prison or am I in state prison? Uh, San Quentin. Mm. Um, 
see San Quentin. I've never been there. Uh, but, well, but that's uh, that's a California state prison. So okay, let's say I committed a crime in California. I'll go along. Um, no, I'm going to do my time. I'm going to do my time. I mean, I would hate to meet 20 years of my, uh, miss 20 years of my son's formative existence. But if I break out of prison, even with a 50, 50 chance, I'm going to be a fugitive anyway. So chances are, you know, I I wouldn't get to enjoy a lot of quality time with, uh, with my son. I'm going to do my time one because, uh, I, I feel like I never have enough time to read. And one of the things that you do get in prison, prison is quite unpleasant. The food is terrible. Yeah. You get assaulted. Uh, there's all sorts of terrible things about it, but the one thing you do have is time to read. I would do that. And, uh, and I would try and do some writing as, uh, as well. One more. Uh, you're a New York City cop, late sixties. Uh, on the take or Serpico? <laughs> and are you gonna and are, and are you gonna watch Palookaville? Are you gonna watch the movie Palookaville? That's the other one. I will watch Palookaville. Uh, I look. I I uh, I wouldn't be on the take, but I can't. I don't see myself being Serp- Serpico either. I, uh, I, I I so I would be somewhere in between on the take and Serpico. Great questions, Greg. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. All right, third time's the charm. We're gonna try and go to Bill in purchase. Hello, Bill. Hello, Frank. Uh, oh, how about a landline. Love it. Now, so. You sound great. Why didn't you call from a landline from the beginning? Well, because um, I'm in bed and I don't have a phone right uh, now. Fair enough. I, fair I, enough. I, I can't I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was the guy last week that wanted to know about your uh, about your um, salary. I, I, you, if you uh, want to email I me, appreciate, appreciate you said what you said today. Oh, sure. So. If you want to email me privately, I'm happy to uh, oh, I'm not, send you my W twos. But I, I can assure I, I, you, I it's underwhelming. Sort of around. Yeah, fair anyway, enough. Anyway, I wanted to know if you think that uh, Sliwa is really angry at you for for moving things around for, uh, you know. First of all, uh, Bill, the thing that's amazing to me about your question. I thought you worked on his campaign and everything. Yeah, well, Bill, I did, right? I've worked with Curtis for almost 20 years on radio and in politics. The thing that's amazing to me about your question is Mm. that anybody, and especially someone who sounds like he's intelligent like you, Anyone is still taken in by any of these things that Curtis says. Now, first of all, number one, I don't think people understand how little influence I have in terms of making programming changes at the radio station. I don't I don't get a say in anything except maybe the four hours that I'm on the air. They don't switch things based on my recommendation. I am now taking to putting suggestions in the suggestion box anonymously so that they think they're from someone more important than me. I have no juice to get things uh, moved around to. Curtis is not ticked off with me in the least. Curtis loves me. It's it's a shtick. Absolutely. It's total shtick. Total shtick. Okay. Thank you, Bill. Good question. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Pete is in Piscataway. It's that away. Hello, Pete. Hi, Frank. Uh, From from Connor to Hernandez. What are your favorite uh, three Met announcers of all time? My favorite three Met announcers of all time? Yes, sir. Um, Bob Murphy, Tim McCarver, and Ralph Kiner. 
old school. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I look. I nothing against Gary Cohen and and Keith Hernandez or Howie Rose on radio, who does a great job. But uh, to me, I just love Tim McCarver. I, I'm trying to get him on the show. He just, I guess, he just retired from the local team that he was working with, and he's he's one of those guys that was polarizing, and a lot of fans didn't like him. I really enjoyed his insights during the game. I learned a lot about baseball from him. Uh, to me, uh, Ralph Kiner, I just associate with my youth growing up watching the Mets and then watching Kiner's Corner. And there were a lot of days when it was very tough uh, to see a Met on Kiner's Corner because they were so terrible and they lost so many games. Uh, but uh, to watch the charm with which Ralph Kiner did that, it, it made me just love the guy. And Bob Murphy, you know, I, I've tried to learn a lot from Bob Murphy. Uh, to me, I don't think there was anybody better at painting uh, painting pictures with words. And he was such an integral part of the Mets franchise for, I guess, about 30 years, maybe more. So uh, those would absolutely be my three. It's a great question, though. Oh, I like Tom Seaver, too, as an announcer. Pretty- I-, I do, too. And I even like Tom Seaver as a Yankee announcer. And, you know, I'll be honest, I like most of the Met announcers. I liked Gary Thorne. I liked Fran Healy. I like most of the Met announcers. I just, um, to me, the three that I mentioned were were very special. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. That's uh, 800-848-9222. Actually, it's more than 30 years that Bob Murphy was with the Mets. I guess it's close to 40 years, right? 800-848-9222. Stuart is in Forest Hills. Hello, Stuart. Hey, Frank. I'd like to know, what do you think are the chances of uh, sometime this year or beyond that, number one, Kamala Harris resigns, number two, Barack Obama is appointed vice president by Joe Biden. Number three, Barack Obama does the 25th on Joe Biden. And we have Barack Obama for a couple of years. He wouldn't be elected. He would be appointed. So that's allowed by the 22nd Amendment. Do you think that's a possibility? Because the Democrats would probably have an orgasm over it. Well, um, so a couple things. So number one, the possibility of Kamala Harris resigning, I uh, I don't think is I don't think is is likely at all. I, even though you know it seems like she and Biden aren't necessarily getting along uh, well, I don't see her resigning. Um, number two, um, I, the, I could see a scenario in which the Twenty Fifth Amendment is used to remove Biden. I would put it at about maybe. Uh, a 10%, maybe 20% chance. I don't believe, uh, and I know the, uh, I know the Constitution allows you to serve as president for up to 10 years if you fill a portion of someone's term. I don't believe a two-term president is eligible to be vice president because the, um, the unless it was so I'm going to double check this, but I he think, wouldn't be elected. He's appointed. No, yeah, go ahead. no, I know. But uh, but still, the to be to be vice president, you have to be constitutionally eligible to take the oath of office as president. So I don't know that someone that served uh, two full terms could then uh, could then become vice president. I'm going to have to double check that. But my recollection is that that wouldn't hold water. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's pretty interesting. And, 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 and quick second question. What do you think about me hiring or getting a consultation with Ron Kuby 
to try to get my $2,000 back from Curtis. Stuart, I actually think that's brilliant. And uh, I'm happy to give you Ron's contact information if you email me privately, because depending on the day you get Kubi, I could see him. I could see him going for that. You know, I could see him if he's in a good mood one day and he's jovial and thinks it would be fun. I could see him doing it if uh, if he's in one of these anti talk radio. Oh, I don't want any part of that stupidity moods. Then he then I could I could see him not doing it. I uh, I don't I I don't give it a shot. If you email me, I'll give you his contact information. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. All right. So, yeah, I'm rereading this 22nd uh, Amendment to the Constitution. The 22nd Amendment states that a president cannot serve for longer than two terms. And you have to be constitutionally eligible to be president in order to be vice president. So, no... Um, the 12th Amendment states that an individual cannot run for the vice presidency if they're not eligible to be president. So I, I can't see him being eligible to be appointed as vice president. So 800-848-9222. Uh, let me say hello to uh, Peter in Manhattan. Hello, Peter. Yes, uh, Frank, uh, I've followed your career for years, and I st- I will state emphatically that you were the brains behind the Curtis uh, facade. You also had connections with other people. What has denied you the ability to run for politics yourself? Well, I'll be honest. I was actually thinking of running in 2021 uh, for for uh, city council and 2020 in state for. State Assembly and a couple of other times for State Assembly. There are two factors that um, that have led me in both of those instances what, not to run. Maybe three. I'll mention all three. But uh, the first one is that uh, m- my first love and my first passion and the thing that I endo- enjoy doing most is radio. So when John uh, Katzmatidis bought this radio station, I was telling friends that I was hoping to get a job on the radio uh, hosting my own show every day, but that if I didn't get that, then I was planning to run for uh, city council in 2021. The other thing is... Uh, the, the my wife made clear that my running for state assembly would be a non-starter uh, for her, that she couldn't deal with me being in Albany six months a year, three days a week. And it would and she didn't want to have a child with me if I was going to be in Albany for six months a year. And then lastly, um, you know, I've really never been comfortable identifying as either a Republican or a Democrat. So I wouldn't switch parties to become a Republican or a Democrat. So it's very difficult to get elected running strictly as a third party candidate. And look, there's a chance that one of those parties would have cross endorsed me if there was uh, like a de- the Democrats might have cross endorsed me for a Republican seat. The Republicans might have cross endorsed me for the, our Democratic seat. But, you know, it, it's still it's a very, very difficult chance of winning. So do you really want to spend all your time, uh, drag your name, have your opponents drag your name through the mud and beg everybody that, you know, for money um, when the likely outcome as a 
an independent is that you're not going to get elected. I- I'd love to do it one day, uh, but uh, but who knows? I'm hoping we can get nonpartisan elections in New York City, and that would make it more likely that I would uh, end up running. But it's a, a great question, Peter. Thank you. Uh, we'll continue with your questions in a minute. Whatever you have questions about, I'm going to do my best to answer them. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. I got a mother named Mary. I got a brother named Barry. And my uncle's name is Harry. And he's in the military. And my grandma's name is Sherry. And she's in the cemetery. I love this song. This is a song that I just get stuck in my head and sing to myself all day long. Um, it is by The Interrupters. It's called Family. Love it, love it, love it. It is catchy. And there's so many rhyming different aspects of it. It's really great, in my opinion. By the way, uh, you know, I, just during the commercial, I was doing a little more homework. And there is some debate about whether a two-term president could could serve as vice president if appointed. There are, and I'm looking at some very respected constitutional scholars, because this is a question that comes up regularly, not just with, um, it didn't just come up with Barack Obama, but it came up previously with George W. Bush and Bill Clinton and others. And there is not a universal consensus on this question. I would say 80% of constitutional scholars agree with the answer that I just gave, but some very respected constitutional scholars disagree. I just read uh, the abstract of a scholarly article for uh, a legal publication by Dan Conan, who's a law professor at the University of Georgia. He says it can, that a, a, a former vice president, twice elected former vice, a former president, can become vice president, either through appointment or election. So um, I still don't think it's likely, but there are at least some constitutional scholars that say it's possible. Would certainly be interesting. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Jeff in Suffolk County. Hello, Jeff. Hi, Frank. A quick comment. Obama's already in charge. All right. Well, what's your question? Well, number two was, I wanted to ask Werner the other night, what did he have Jeff, I'm not. I'm not hearing you. If you could try and borrow that same landline from that other fella, uh, I'm not hearing you. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Mike is uh, in a truck in West Virginia. Hello, Mike. Good morning, Frank. Yes, I'm Michael. Trucking through West Virginia. I have a question about your uh, police officer friend. Yes. Um, my question is, what's the latest on him? And and I don't know how legal it would be, but you said that your mayor there used to be a police officer himself, and he once did what, except for being, you know, friends with a Republican, but um, he once did what your police officer friend did. Why don't they call him on the stand? Subpoena him. Uh, Well, well, the trial is over, and, uh, you know, he had a very good lawyer, and I I guess that's, um, you know, I guess that was a strategy that they didn't go with, but to be clear, what Eric Adams did was much worse 
according to the patrol guide than what Sal Greco's accused of doing. Sal Greco is friends with Roger Stone, and they allege that he was that he was, you know, essentially palling around with criminals and acting as Roger's security. He wasn't Roger's security. He was Roger's friend. Now, what Eric Adams did when he was a cop was after Mike Tyson was convicted for rape, he did work as paid security to Mike Tyson. So Eric Adams actually did do what they accused Sal of doing, and nothing happened to him. He was never brought on charges. But the latest is his trial is over, and as I understand it, the judge has, uh, I believe, 30 days to make a determination or, or about what should happen, and then the police commissioner, Commissioner Sewell, has about 90 days in order to uh, in order to make a decision about what to do. She doesn't have to go with the judge's recommendation, but they they often do. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Alfredo is in Newark. Hello, Alfredo. Yes, Frank. Good evening. Uh, Frank, uh, have you ever met somebody who you like most, like, for example, a politician or a sportsman or somebody who you love to meet? You know, like, uh, if you met him or her, then you will die. No problem. Um, well, I, I never really spoke to him in person, but I did get to speak on the phone a few times with William Shatner. That was a real thrill. I have gotten to meet Ralph Nader many times. He's uh, very much a hero of mine. That was a thrill. And, uh, you know, I got to tell you, of celebrities that I've met, the two that just blew me away at how nice they were were John Travolta and Kelsey Grammer. I have never met two nicer people than John Travolta and Kelsey Grammer. Those guys were Absolutely incredible. And you know who's close to that? And as a Met fan, this was a real thrill to be able to meet him. Uh, Doc Gooden. I got to spend some time with Doc Gooden when Margot Katsimatidis threw out the first pitch at, um, you know, at, uh, at, at MCU Park at, for the Cyclones. And he was great. He was a delight to be around. And uh, I really owe my friend Todd Shapiro a debt for, um, for uh arranging that uh but and you know a lot of journalists that i've met was a real thrill uh getting to know steve dunleavy and jimmy breslin both separately and together that was a real thrill um but those are the ones that most immediately come to mind ralph nader john travolta kelsey Grammer, doc gooden and steve dunleavy and jimmy breslin great question though alfredo 800-848-9222 lamar is in the boogie down bronx hello lamar Okay. Good morning, Professor Morano. Okay. Hope you're doing well. Thank Hope your family you. is Thank well. You. Thank you. Okay. All right, Professor. Look, quick question concerning professional wrestling. Okay, I'm ready. Okay. Whatever happened to Sid Vicious, also known as Sid Justice? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Um, he is still alive. He's about 60 years old uh, these days. Mm. Uh, He still does appearances in some, uh, you know, some wrestling related things. His last time on WWE wrestling was about Uh uh, 10 years ago. He he's had some legal problems. He was arrested uh, back in Tennessee and pulled over and charged with not wearing a seatbelt. Then he was charged with possession of marijuana and driving without a license. Mm. Um, So he still does appearances Mm. at a lot of smaller wrestling promotions and um uh, i i really don't know specifically i can only tell you he's still alive 
Okay. All right. Okay. Well, no, that's okay. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. I remember one time, Professor, I remember one time I seen him grab Undertaker by the neck in WWE or it was WWF, and he was, like, pushing him, like. Oh, no, the guy was big and strong, that's for sure. His son is also a wrestler, Gunner Udy. I don't know much about the son. You know anything about the son, Matt Blade? No? Yeah, I don't know much about his son, but I've seen that his son is a wrestler. He was on the the reality show Big Brother. But uh, he was one of those guys, one of the best physiques, and just in terms of pure strength, uh, really, Uh really terrific. Uh, Not necessarily the best in-ring performer. And you remember, he stabbed Arn Anderson, my hero, Arn Anderson. He stabbed him. Uh, one day in a, a very, very rough, rough night. I, they did eventually patch things up, but uh, he uh, he had his moments, Sid Vicious, that's for sure. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Karen is in Rockland County. Hello, Karen. Hi, Frank. How are you? Uh, let me, if you were president of the United States, do you think your executive uh, privilege... Uh, power should be limited because uh, the is abusing the privilege. Oh, 100%. And, you know, this is something that I've complained about for years. A- and every president makes it worse, um, makes it worse because you just they keep pushing the limit of executive power. And whoever the opposing party is, they always say, oh, the president's becoming a monarch, president's becoming a monarch. The opposing party is always right because the powers of the presidency now uh, and the ever-expanding reach of of executive power is very troubling. And in my view, it's not at all what was intended by the uh, framers of the Constitution. So absolutely... He does everything on his own. He doesn't go through... I mean, nothing. Just, you know... Whatever he feels like doing. Yeah, again, this, the, Trump and Obama did the same thing. You remember uh, there were a lot of other executive orders in their era. Now, now, you might think that with Trump, more of them were things that you might agree with, uh, and I'm sure that's true. But it, when it comes to using just the pen instead of going through the legislative power, uh, process, Trump did a great deal of that as well. Gary is in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Hello, Gary. Hey, Frank. How are you? I'm hanging in there, Gary. Thanks. All right. Yes, this is Gary of Nazareth. Actually, you and I have an anniversary coming up. But um, oh boy, I will. Don't tell I my wife about it. it. <laughs> yes, actually, because um, Saturday is uh, Winston Churchill Day, April 9th, and that's when you had me on your. Oh, show this is uh, Gary Corb of uh, Cigar yeah. Insider, right? <laughs> Yes. Great. Yes. Well, it's great to I, talk with you. Gary, uh, Cigar Advisor. Yes. Cigar Advisor. I'm you, sorry. You, you've had some great shows the last couple of weeks, but I, let me get to my question because I know a lot of people are waiting. Um, uh, what do you think? I've been thinking about this for a long time. What, what do you think of like how they have in Israel here in, say, the States, having like a mandatory military service where you graduate from high school and you have to do some military service, or if you can't, you know, perform perform. if you can't do military service, maybe you do some kind of civil service. And I think it would keep a lot of kids off the streets because we really got to do something about these 
these young kids. Well, I am for uh, I am for 100 uh, percent two years of mandatory national service. I don't think it necessarily has to be military. If you want to do that service as a teaching fellow or in the Peace right. Corps mm-hmm. or some other field, I'm all for that, because uh, truth be told, we don't need 40 million new soldiers. And if if we had 40 million <laughs> new soldiers, I shudder to think the wars that we'd be getting into if we had that that military at our disposal. But yes, I, I think it would be a, a tremendous character building um, exercise, and I think Absolutely. it would be. I think it would uh, do a lot to instill a sense. And I've done segments on this. Uh, I do a great deal to instill a sense of civic involvement and patriotism, which I think mm-hmm. uh, is too often uh, lacking. And to be honest, right. as far as the military aspect of things goes. You know, I feel like Congress would be a little bit less likely to to send American troops to war if it was their sons and their nephews that were going to be fighting in that war. That's an interesting angle. Yeah. Yeah. Gary, thanks for the call. Great question. 800-848-9222. I'm feeling sporting. Let's say hello to Chris in the Catskills. Hello, Chris. How are you, sir? Hey, I just want to let you know, I actually left a message on Ron Kuby's answering machine, and I apologize if I uh, offended his, it said anything that bothered him, and uh, I urged him to come on. Oh, great. Good. Well, thank you, Chris. All right. Good. Uh, it said you were registered as a Democrat in 2008, New Jersey. Who Is that said you? No, I've never lived in New Jersey and never been a Democrat. Okay, Hell no. So, Frank. Yeah. Yeah, I'm here. Well, oh, all right. Was, um, this is my rule of running for elections. Thank your wife when you get home. If you don't have at least a 50% chance of winning, don't run. And But I violated that rule the last time I ran because I would have had a chance to beat everybody that ever beat me in the world of politics. And I said to myself, I'll kick myself in the ass eight years from now if I don't try this, you know. All right. So, Chris, w- w- was that your only question? Was I a Democrat in New Jersey in 2008? Yeah, I, right. I, I thought I thought you banned me for life. I didn't think you're going to take. me. Ah, you're right. You know, I should always go with my first instincts. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Mark is in New Haven. Hello, Mark. Good morning, Frank. Uh, how rough on the baby? Everybody. Everybody's good? great. Thanks for asking. Excellent, excellent. And, and Sid's a genius, by the way. I don't know if you knew this. What did you say? Anyway, what, did, what was Sid's a genius? A genius. Sid's a genius. I like it. Great. But that's not my question. I have two questions. The the, the serious one first, which is, um, I, I remember you hearing hearing you say, I think that you are a fan of Professor Stephen, late Professor Stephen F. Collins. Absolutely. That, wondered, it was a real thrill to meet him, actually. Uh, you know, just going back to what that other gentleman asked. Yes. Sure, sure. Um, the question is, what do you think he would make of the current Russia-Ukraine situation? And don't you, my question, I guess, is don't you wish we had his insight? Oh, oh every day. And I had his wife on this show a couple of weeks ago, Katrina Vandenhoeven. And I told her that same thing. I really wish he was around. I, You know, I'm very hesitant to uh, to think, to guess at what dead people would be saying about about current events because i don't want people doing that with me when i die no, I but my guess is uh, that he would be where i am which is wanting 
a diplomatic end and a negotiated settlement so that people stop dying and recognizing the reality of the situation, which is that Crimea is never going to be part of Ukraine again. And it's incredibly unlikely that these Donbass republics are ever going to be part of Ukraine. So I think he would be on the side of uh, a di- diplomatically negotiating a ceasefire while the details are hammering hammered out to make sure that Ukraine remains a, a neutral country rather than being part of NATO and recognize that Crimea is going to be Russian and recognize that those those Donbass republics are not going to be Ukrainian. Great question, though, Mark. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Michael is in my bedroom. Michael, don't wake my son. Ah, oh, Michael hung up. Uh, 800-848-WABC. Uh, Pat is in New Jersey. Hello, Pat. Hi, Frank. How are you? Oh, that's the easiest question I've gotten all day. I'm great. <laughs> Good. Okay, I had a couple of questions about Carmine's um, christening. Number one, did you smooth things over with your brother who wasn't asked? Uh, he was heard. Yeah, um, I, I think so. I'm supposed to see him uh, tomorrow. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll chat about that a little bit later because we may uh, we may not get together because his fiance has uh he thinks she has covid but i i think so he he, he made it sound like we're we, you know the, every we're square but i'm not so sure to be honest okay and also what's it curtis said he wasn't invited to the christening did you ever invite him uh, no we did not my my oh. wife has a, a very wow. very strict guest list and uh it's really you know keep in mind she's got eight siblings right i've got three right uh she's got a mother i have um you know two parents and two step parents and it gets pretty crowded pretty quickly, right? So I have three first cousins. All the people that I just mentioned, they have a significant other, or at least most of them. So it, it, the, the, we're trying to keep this somewhat manageable. So unfortunately, I, I had Curtis on my list of people to be invited, but he got vetoed. He got Rachel used her veto power to eliminate Curtis. I'm like a person of no consequence. <laughs> okay, great. Well, congratulations to Carmen. Thank you, Pat. Appreciate you asking. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Uh, let me say hello to Larry in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Yeah, hi, Frank. You know, you could have substituted uh, Curtis on the guest list for your Jewish sister-in-law. No, I'm well, sure she wouldn't mind not going. Uh, you know, I, you, I still, I don't know how that would fly with my wife we we have relatives of ours that aren't getting invited so i'm not sure curtis is making the cut i have a question for you i'm ready um okay uh, i i have a solution um if you can't if we can't revoke this no bail law i have a solution i want to think what i want to see what you think of it okay um <clears throat> uh, most of the crimes that are committed everybody would agree are mostly young black males hispanic young let's say young black males and most of the, the um, young black males live in housing projects where they're not paying any rent. So how so they're getting like a double a double windfall? They're not paying bail and they're not paying rent. How about we do what the Israelis do? If you commit a, a serious crime, like a murder or something, we take your house away. A gun, use a gun. We take you. We throw your whole family in the street, like they do in Israel. They blow up the house. We'll just give it to someone else. We won't blow up the housing project. We'll just give it to some, the apartment to somebody else. It's a free apartment. And if you do so, it's just, just like we take felons' rights to vote away, okay? We could, t- we could revoke a civil right if you commit a, 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 an anti-social um, act. 
And that's it, like the Israelis do. What, what do you think about that solution? I, I, uh, I don't like it, Larry, and here's why. Um, and I said the same thing when my, my colleague Rudy Giuliani was mayor, and he had the idea that if someone was caught drinking and driving to take their car away. Now, what if a husband and wife uh, share a car? I remember thinking at the time. Then uh, the husband is a knucklehead. He gets arrested for drinking and driving. And the wife, who never did anything wrong, is now forced to either pay car service or take three buses to work. I, I didn't think that's fair to the wife who never committed any crime. And my, my position would be the same thing on your proposal, that I don't think that uh, that would be fair to family members that committed no crime uh, to all of a sudden find themselves homeless. By the way, it looks like in the state budget, uh, there are a bunch of positive changes to the uh, bail reform law. It looks like judges are going to have a little bit more discretion for gun charges that were pro- previously subject to um, only to release. It looks like they're they're closing some loopholes in the raise the age legislation to hold more defendants under 18 accountable. Uh, so uh, we made some progress on the budget. I think there's still a lot more to go, but uh, but I think that's you know, that's certainly a positive. All right, we're going to try again uh, to go to Michael, who's calling from my bedroom. Hello, Michael. Hey, Frank, a question for you. And there's a reason why I'm asking the question. Do you consider radio listeners more intelligent, excluding me, more intelligent than TV viewers, and I have a reason for asking the question. I will say um, yes. On an apples-to-apples comparison, yes. If you listen to the radio at noon every day versus watching TV at noon every day, yes, I think the radio listener is more intelligent. If you're listening to the radio at 3 a.m. every day rather than uh, watching TV at 3 a.m. every day, I think the radio listener is more intelligent, and uh, yes, I do. Okay, here's my reason for asking. Can you explain to me why the heck on all radio stations, when there's a commercial, they say, and call 1-800-blah-blah-blah. They say it four times. Well, look, uh, what if you don't have a pen? I mean, I don't think they expect everybody to have the number committed to memory. Uh, By the time you hear there's a phone number worth uh, taking down, you, you, the phone number's already been said and almost forgotten. So I don't, I, I repeat the number constantly. Well, 800-848-WABC, 800-848-9222. You want a question? 800-848-WABC. We'll continue with your questions straight ahead. WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. side of midnight i'm frank moreno uh, I'll, I'll go through a couple of these email questions here uh, one emailer asked the question 
Have you ever had a caller do something indicative of emotional disturbance or self-harm on the air? And how did you respond? Well, as far as emotional disturbance, look, the calls that we get from Richard and Parsippany, uh, E. Frank and Astoria, Gary in Staten Island, um, uh, Joe in the Bronx, I mean, uh, the, the Joe in Brooklyn that doesn't even wait on hold to talk to me anymore. That's, I mean, that sounds to me like an emotional disturbance in every every possible sense. In fact, I, I almost get the sense that sometimes these folks are calling from an institution sometimes. Sometimes I think they should be institutionalized. In the case of self-harm, no. I've never had somebody call and say, I'm going to kill myself or something like that. In terms of how would I respond, I don't know how I would respond. I, I think I would try and keep them talking as we called the police to try and uh, alert them of the situation and kind of just bought time until the police got there. I think that's I think that's how we I think that's how I would do it. Tom asks the question, do you know why, by your own admission, you subscribe to so many conspiracy theories that most people dismiss as lunacy. Well, look, I'm not tooting my own horn here, but studies suggest, and I've talked about this with Jesse Ventura, that people that believe conspiracy theories tend to be more intelligent than folks that don't believe them. So maybe it's just my above-average intelligence. Look, uh, and then the uh, corollary to that. Uh, allied to that, with respect to Ukraine, why do you believe in the facts provided by outlier fringe bloggers like Glenn Greenwald, Michael Tracy, and Mike, Max Blumenthal over those provided by virtually every eyewitness reporter on the ground representing virtually every country in the world of every political ideology? Well, I'm not disbelieving eyewitness accounts. What I'm skeptical of is Ukrainian propaganda. I'm skeptical of videos uh, and reports that have not been independently vetted because we see what happens when there's these unconfirmed uh, reports of things that are independently vetted. We get weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. We get chemical weapons being used by Assad. We get, uh, oh, the Russians were paying a bounty in Afghanistan for the heads of American troops. None of that is true. None of that is true. So... Call me crazy if I want to ask for a little proof of what people say is true. And especially if it has far-reaching foreign policy implications, like giving the Ukrainians $100 million in in military aid or setting up a no-fly zone. I can't speak to Max Blumenthal because I'm less familiar with his work, but I have followed the reporting of Glenn Greenwald and Michael Tracy very closely I cannot think of a single instance in which they reported something that was inaccurate, that was factually inaccurate. So who has a better track record, them or ABC News? Who has a better track record, Glenn Greenwald and Michael Tracy or Fox News? Who has a better track record, Glenn Greenwald and Michael Tracy, who you might disagree with their opinions or their conclusions, but the facts are always accurate. Who has a better track record, them or MSNBC? I mean, to me... There's no contest. There's no contest. 800-848-WABC. Jimmy is in Brooklyn. Hello, Jimmy. Good morning, Frankie. Uh, it's been a long time. Uh, a friend of ours, uh, I haven't spoken to him or heard from him. He was writing to me uh, like weekly. 
and uh, he stopped. Uh, Frankie, uh, I'm sorry, Tommy Gioli. Have you heard from him? You know, he actually called me yesterday, as a matter of fact. Really? Um, but I was asleep when he called. So I got a nice text message from his wife, Maureen, who I know listens. She's probably listening right now. And uh, that uh, he was trying to reach me. So he's actually on my list of people to reach out to via email this week. And uh, I, I'd say I'm going to do a few. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, how is his health? Because I know his health hasn't been that well in the recent past. It's not great. And uh, I think it's a real shame that uh, this judge in Brooklyn uh, denied him uh, when he's dealing with cancer. Uh, d- denied him compassionate release. So uh, I'm going to reach out to him again via email, and hopefully we can chat in the next few days. That's great. You know, he's supposed to be released in uh, 24 years. Oh, you know? uh, I'm well aware of that. I was there the day you were sentenced. Yeah. Well aware. Oh, okay. That, 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 that's right. I should have known better. But, uh, yeah, I really, you know, I mean, he's a perfect example, Frank. Uh, I mean, look, the guy is not an angel. He really never was an angel, but uh, he got railroaded. Let's face it. He got railroaded. He- uh, oh, no. I'm going to do a future podcast on that whole case because that is just a horrible, uh, horrible example of the criminal justice system at its worst. Uh, let me say hello to Pamela in the boogie down in Brooklyn. Hello, Pamela. Yes, hi. I was wondering, do you know who Sidney Sheldon is? Sure. I've talked about Sidney Sheldon uh, before. Yes, the children's book author. Absolutely. Well, did you know that he wrote a novel and it's called The Other Side of Midnight? I I didn't realize that was his novel. Well, that's what it is. Uh, You know, I've not read the book, uh, but um, I I, I am going to pick it up. Well, any, any relationship to the name of your uh, show? You know, I wish I could take credit for the name. Uh, the name was was selected by our owner, John Katsimatidis. I actually had nothing to do with the name. I just show up on the other side I of midnight. Understand, but the name of the novel is the same name as your show. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to have to give it a read uh, because I am a Sidney Sheldon fan, and he's uh, he wrote one of my favorite Johnny Cash songs, "A Boy Named Sue." Uh, which is uh, which is terrific. I think he wrote some other Johnny Cash songs as well. Mike's in New Rochelle. Hello, Mike. Good morning, Frank. By the way, you, I think you had the best name for Curtis's show, The Other Side of Sanity. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my, my, my question is kind of like, it's three in one. So I was going to ask you if there were guests that you tried to get that completely blew you off. Who was the toughest guy you ever got that you never thought you'd get that you got? And who do you have heat with in the radio industry or just in general? That's uh, it. Okay, well, let me let me give some thought, right? So in terms of people that blew me off. I have to do it right now. Okay, well, I, I, I would want to think about this. You know, somebody that I can't understand why she hasn't come on with me uh, is, is Tulsi Gabbard. I praise Tulsi Gabbard to the high heavens. I think I gave her money when she ran for president, and I've, I've submitted a number of requests for interviews with her, and she has never come on. Um, but she, she hasn't been rude or anything. She just, I haven't heard any response from her camp uh, at all. And then, um, who else that I haven't had on? Luis Elizondo, the former head of the ATIP program, which is the Pentagon's UFO watching program. He hasn't come on with me. He hasn't even come on with John Katsimatidis. He was on with Tucker this week. And it just goes to show Tucker and I are constantly gravitated towards the same guests. In terms of who I have heat with, I really kind of get along with everybody. In terms of um, 
people that I mean, Mark Simone doesn't like me, uh, but I have no issue with him. Honestly, uh, I don't think there's anyone that I really dislike. I'm trying to think. I don't, I don't know that there is. Uh, there are people that I might not be fans of their work on the radio, but in terms of personality, you know, I don't. There's nobody that I really. There's nobody that I really dislike. Uh, Mark is in Garden City. Hello, Mark. Hi, Frank. Hi, Mark. Frank, um, I wanted to ask you, do you remember the overnight radio show done by Steve Molesburg? Sure, sure. I used to listen to it often, yes. Do you remember, was that ABC or WOR? Uh, that was WABC. He was on WOR in the afternoons. So the overnight show, he had this catchy theme song, and I was wondering if you knew what song that was. Well, I had thought it was Tom Petty's I Won't Back Down. No, it was... Um... Uh, the refrain was up all night. They would keep saying up all night, up all night. Yeah, um, it, it's um, you know that sounds familiar actually. Now that you now that you mentioned that, I I, I think um, I, I think it might be Bobby Lewis uh, t- tossing and turning, uh, but I'm not sure. I'll check with Steve. I'll reach out to him. I've been meaning to reach out to him anyway. Oh, that's great. I appreciate that, Frank. All right. Thank you. It's a good question. I'll reach out to him. 800-848-9222. Gina is in Brooklyn. Hello, Gina. Hi, Frank. Frank, I was just wondering, what is or was the hardest thing you ever had to assemble? So the thing that was the most difficult thing in recent memory, I couldn't finish. It was... It was um, a swing. I, I don't remember the brand. A swing for my son, and I couldn't finish it. And n- it took not only me, but my father, who's a whiz at putting together this stuff, and my stepmother and my sister. The four of us all had to work on this before we could finally get it assembled and working. That's the most difficult thing that I can remember. Uh, remember assembling. Uh, to be honest, it was a, a, a swing. I don't remember. It, it's just a horrible swing. And then, you know, if you look at the reviews, a lot of people end up saying the same thing. Okay, thanks. All right, thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight W A B C. Let me squeeze in one last call here. Um, Frank in Babylon. Hello, Frank. Frank? Yes, good evening. Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, real quick, Frank. We only got a minute. All right. Uh, Elon Musk recently made a comment, a remark. He stated that he, we don't have enough people. What, I, I was surprised by that. And um, he said we don't have enough people here on the earth, period. What do you, what's your uh, th- thought on that? I, I, uh, I, I really honestly don't have an opinion either way. I couldn't say. I, I didn't see that Elon Musk re- remark, and I'm not sure what the rationale for him saying it was. Uh, so I, I couldn't say. It doesn't strike me as, as an immediate problem. All right. Uh, why don't we go ahead and pick a winner? Mattley, uh, have you come up with the best question from the past hour? Uh, Greg, New Jersey. Greg in New Jersey. What was his question again? Uh, would you choose to escape from prison? Ah, if you okay. Greg in New Jersey. In if I had a 50-50 chance of uh, escaping from prison, Greg, call back. We're going to give you a The Other Side of Midnight t-shirt in your size, you lucky dog. That's exciting. All right, we got an action-packed show. We rarely do three guests on a Friday. I try. I like to do zero guests on a Friday or one, but it just so happened we had an opportunity to talk to a lot of interesting people. Eric Siegel on uh, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. Michael Uslan on Batman. 
and Dan um, David Beatty on UFOs, including this latest sighting by the USS, uh, by this naval warship. Until next hour, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. Some of you can't even chew gum and think at the same time. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone this is the other side of midnight i'm frank moreno thanks for listening well here we go again once again and i'm sure you're tired of hearing about this i am sure a lot of people are tired of telling you about it namely me uh but uh, once again we are seeing COVID cases are spiking all over the country, including here in New York. Half of the states are seeing COVID case numbers rise again, while nationwide totals continue to fall. And deaths, thankfully, even in New York, which is seeing an uptick, deaths are continuing to fall. So the Omicron subvariant, known as BA.2, is the dominant strain that's circulating around the United States, accounting for almost three out of every four cases. So apparently what's happening as the in-person gatherings have begun again, COVID has sickened a number of Washington A-listers. We saw it with uh, Adam Schiff, Nancy Pelosi, Merrick Garland. Overall, So by the numbers, overall cases dropped 5% across the U.S. to an average of about 28,700 cases from an average of more than 30,000 cases two weeks ago. Three states, Alaska, Vermont, and Rhode Island, had more than 20 new cases per 100,000. Nine states, Utah, Montana, South Dakota, Kansas, Louisiana, Iowa, Arkansas, Indiana, and Tennessee, had three or four, uh, had three or fewer new cases per 100,000 people. Deaths fell to an average of 600 a day, which is down 34%. From just over 900 a day, uh, 900 a day two weeks ago. So, U.S. officials have said they are not expecting a significant rise in hospitalizations or deaths. There have been signs of hospitalizations rising among older individuals in the U.K. In China, in Shanghai, they have a full-fledged lockdown, and it is very scary in China right now. So since those numbers, the death numbers lag behind the new cases, we won't really have a clear view of the impact in the U.S. for a few weeks. The highly contagious subvariant surged through parts of Europe, but probably will spare many Americans thanks in part to the Omicron surge. You remember I said that right around December when my wife had it, when people thought maybe I had it. I said in some respects I thought that Omicron was the best thing for us. Because nobody was being hospitalized, nobody was dying, almost, when I say nobody, I realize people died, I realize people were hospitalized. It wasn't floods of people being hospitalized and dying, like there was with the initial wave. And I said, in some ways, I think this is the best thing, 
because it's giving people immunity, especially those of us that have already had the vaccine. It's giving us immunity to more virulent variants, but it's not killing anybody. So I continue to hope that's the case, but it's still still here. And look, uh, we had a a covid um, positive person on our floor uh, just this week. So, you know, you never know. You never know uh, what what the future holds. But I'm hoping that our leaders recognize the danger of these lockdowns. Almost every impact of society was hurt by these lockdowns. Aside from the economy and the supply chain issues, I mean, area after area was damaged, in some cases irreparably, by these um, lockdowns. So I'm hoping... Even if cases tick up in a big way that we don't see in New York, uh, a suspension of indoor dining and all the rest, we'll see what happens. Uh, I'm hopeful that uh, these four-year-olds and three-year-olds can take their masks off sometime soon. 800-848-WABC. I'll tell you one quick anecdote. My wife was, now that we have a child, we both want to get a little more life insurance. So she had an exam for her life insurance uh, today, you know, like a physical. And they make a big issue of telling you, they make a big issue of telling you you have to wear a mask the whole time. So my wife is vaccinated and she's had COVID. She's wearing a mask in her own home, in her own home, while being examined by this insurance examiner who also was vaccinated, who also had COVID, who is also masked. And it was so silly that they both felt the situation was so silly that here they are two people that have to wear masks as per the order from the insurance company. But there's very little danger, and neither of them are COVID positive, to the best of their knowledge. There's very little danger that either of them would give the other person COVID. Additionally, um, you know, you have to urinate as part of your physical. So my wife is chugging water and she has to go to another room, remove her mask, chug some water in the hopes that she can urinate and then uh, ultimately is able to uh, to urinate. It's um, it just strikes me as odd. And I, I think if we do go through this, even if it gets. Even if it gets bad this time around, I don't think, at least I hope, we won't see a comeback of all those, you know, of all those restrictions. We'll see what happens. I know a lot of your eyes gloss over when I talk about international affairs. But I think what we're seeing in Ukraine and what we saw in Afghanistan is an indication that national affairs really do matter. Two countries that I want to mention very quickly, very quickly, this won't take more than four minutes, set your watch to it, that are potentially on the verge of government shakeups, France and Israel. In France, they are having their presidential election on Saturday. Now, the way the presidential elections work in France, is very similar to the way they work in Louisiana. 
if no one gets 50% of the vote or more, if anybody gets 50% of the vote or more, that person's elected as the new president of France for a six-year term. But if no one's elected, then I believe it's a six-year term. I'll double-check on that. might be an eight-year term. Let me check on that. But if no one's elected with 50% of the vote plus one, then the top two vote-getters advance to a runoff, and those two compete. Now, uh, six years ago or eight years ago, it was maybe it was eight years ago. I'm I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look that up real quick. But um, eight years ago, the two top contenders were no, it was six years ago. Okay, the two top contenders were Emmanuel Macron, who ran basically as a third party candidate, sort of came out of nowhere um, and ran a very interesting campaign, appealed to a lot of non-traditional constituencies. He was tough to pin down. Is he right wing? Is he left wing? What is he? Nobody really knew. And the, he finished first. And then the second place finisher that faced against him in the in the runoff is this woman that runs just about every year, Marine Le Pen. And she is the leader these days of one of the right wing parties uh, the National Front, and her father was the was the fa- was one of the leaders of this party. I think he might have even been the founder of the party. And under her father's leadership, he was um, he was Jean Marie Le Pen was his name. He was very right wing, like it almost bordered on. I'm hesitant to use the term, but it almost bordered on fascism or Nazism. It was very, I mean, there were strands of racism. Under Marine Le Pen's leadership, she has tended to be, um, actually, they don't even call it the National Front anymore because I guess she doesn't want to be associated with a lot of her father's beliefs and a lot of the things that her father has said. They actually renamed it the National Rally. And she actually excommunicated her own father from the party. Can you imagine that? You're the leader of the party. You think, oh, this is great. I'm going to run for president. I made it to the top two, which he did. The father made it to the top two once. Then my daughter becomes uh, the leader of the party. She's running for president. What does his daughter do? She expelled him from his own party. So you get the sense that uh, maybe things were not so great in the Le Pen family. But anyway. So she's a member of the National uh, Assembly out there in France. She's been a member of the European Parliament. And six years ago, she was defeated in the runoff by Macron. It was about 60 percent to about 40 percent. Macron got about 61 percent. She had about 37, 38 percent. This year, oh boy, oh boy, man, oh, Manischewitz. There are some interesting things happening in this French election. So everybody expected the same thing to happen. And then there was this this other right wing politician in France that they were referring to as the French Tucker Carlson. He's a media personality out there and uh, Eric Zemmour. And he was thought maybe he's going to be in the top two. Doesn't look like he's going to make the top two. Apparently. They are saying that Marine Le Pen is closing in on Macron. And if she's able right now, keep in mind what I just said. She lost to him 60-40 in the runoff 60 years ago. And now she's within six percentage points 
of Macron, according to the polls. So we'll see what that means for the runoff on April 24th. But so far, if those opinion polls are accurate, and you know how skeptical I am of the polls, if those opinion polls are accurate, we could see um, a whole new ball game for that runoff on April 24th. It could be the first time that Marine Le Pen makes a credible run for the presidency. And there's a lot of theories as to what's behind France moving to the right. Some people say it's uh, distaste with some of the things Macron has done on COVID. Some people think um, that uh, Macron has taken a pro-Russian attitude while Marine Le Pen was smart to pivot to a more moderate point of view. Other people think it's the fact that a lot of people are getting upset with immigration into France from Muslim countries. And they're, they're seeing a French identity that's diminishing. So we'll see what happens, but we're going to be watching it. I I find French elections and French politics so interesting. Now, what's happening in Israel is even more interesting. You know about these terrorist attacks out there, uh, and this is really the first big test of Naftali Bennett, the prime minister there, and his Yamina party. Now, Naftali Bennett, understand what he did. You had a conservative prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, but he couldn't get, they have a parliamentary system, he couldn't get enough votes to form a government. You need a majority. And he couldn't form a governing coalition. So they had election. Then they had another election. Then they had another election. And still pretty much the same result. No majority, no majority, no majority. Four elections in something like two and a half years. And I've always liked the Israeli system. I've always liked the parliamentary system. But after seeing the Israeli taxpayers forced to shoulder shoulder the burden for four rounds of elections, I'm starting to think, whoa, maybe that's not the best system. Um, so Bennett is a right winger. And that's not me calling him a name. That's what he calls himself. He says he's very proud to be a right winger. He says uh, all sorts of things that are very uh, hyperbolic, very over the top. He partnered basically with a whole bunch of parties that don't like, that didn't like Benjamin Netanyahu, including some of the Arab parties. So he partnered with some of the moderate parties, partnered with some of the left wing parties and partnered with some of the Arab parties. All of these parties have nothing in common other than they don't like Benjamin Netanyahu and They said, all right, I'm going to serve as prime minister for a couple of years. Then you serve. Well, uh, as we stand here now, the Israeli government is on the brink of collapse right now. And I I think this is a shame because whatever you think about Naftali Bennett, I love this way of governing. You remember that suggestion that I wrote for WABCRadio.com of a unity ticket of David Patterson and George Pataki. I I love these kind of unity tickets, right? Um. But right now, the great experiment, and they did something similar in Italy with the the five-star movement, but this experiment in coalition building appears to be on the verge of failing because on Wednesday, the Israeli government lost its majority in the Knesset when the coalition whip from Naftali Bennett's Yamina party announced that she was joining the opposition. 
So this dramatic development brings this fragile Israeli coalition, which was already hanging on by a thread. It had a one seat majority to the brink of collapse less than a year after it was formed. So Edith Silman, who was the uh, coalition whip, she announced that she couldn't support the unity government and she called for the formation of a new right wing government without holding fresh elections. She used the pretext of um, of a memo the Minister of Health sent to government hospitals a few days ago, instructing them to hold a high court ruling, allowing people to bring leavened foods into hospitals in Passover. She said, I couldn't allow it to harm Israel's Jewish identity. So that's where things are in Israel. The government is about to collapse because the health minister was going to uphold a court ruling allowing people to bring leavened food into hospitals. That's where things are there. Uh, But they say that's not the real reason. According to a lot of sources in Israel, in the coalition, they said in recent weeks, Silman faced pressure from her family and friends to leave the coalition. It all comes down to these terror attacks and the growing criticism about the government not giving building permits in the settlements in the West Bank. So, uh, But what led her to the final decision was a purported political deal she reached with the opposition leader, Benjamin Netanyahu, who evidently has promised her a top spot on the Likud list in the next election and the position of Ministry of Health if Likud forms the next government. So, so often politics comes down to deal-making. Sometimes it comes down to leavened bread and whether it's allowed in hospitals. In politics, and especially in legislative systems and legislative bodies, they say sometimes you don't want to see the sausage being made. Well, in the Israeli Knesset, sometimes you don't want to see the bread leavened. Uh, Bennett was totally caught off guard, apparently. He only heard about this when his aides saw the media notifications about it. And he was supposed to meet with this woman on Wednesday, but she canceled the meeting and stopped taking calls from the prime minister's office. That's never a good sign. Uh, That's a shame. Because I thought this was a pretty interesting experiment in governing coalitions. I really did. 800-848-WABC. If you have a quick comment on either the comeback of COVID, the French election on Saturday, or the forthcoming collapse of the Israeli government. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. I may regret this, but, um, well, actually, no. Let's go to first Eddie in Ocean County. Hello, Eddie. Hi, Frank. I think you are underestimating uh, the chutzpah of what uh, Naftali Bennett did. With respect to Russia or with respect to what? With respect to how he became prime minister and and the whole whole idea of this national unity government. The people didn't elect a unity government. They had an election in which they all voted for different parties. And then all these parties, Bennett, who was right-wing, he, par- he partnered up with these ra- radical left-wing right. parties and Arab parties, which have never been in the government before, and he they he formed a government against his voters' will. He got seven percent of the national vote in in the election. Right, and that's and again, your point's well taken. It would be like uh, if um, the libertarian candidate Joe Jorgensen formed a, a unity ticket with uh, you know the 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 Green Party candidate. 
who was a Green Party candidate in 2020? It was uh, – I'm, I'm going to have to look that up because it's going to bother me. Uh, but um, – oh, Howie Hawkins. Oh, how could I forget a New Yorker, Howie Hawkins? It would be like if Joe Jorgensen and Howie Hawkins uh, partnered with, uh, with, uh, with, with Donald – it would really be like if Ted Cruz and Bernie Sanders partnered with one another. You could see yeah. Bernie Sanders voters not being pleased. You could see Ted Cruz's voters not being pleased. I get all that. I still thought uh, in the polarized political environment in which we live, I thought it was kind of a neat thing. And if it worked, I thought it would could be a good model for things in this country as well. But your point's well taken, Eddie. Uh, how, why should yeah. somebody that got 7% of the seats be in a position to make to lead the country? I get it. I get it. Uh, very quickly, Joseph in the Bronx. Joseph, please don't say anything anti-Semitic. <laughs> Well, uh, concerning uh, the French election and Marine Le Pen and national rally, well, uh, <clears throat> I just wanted to comment with regard to, uh, you know, the reasons as to uh, her increase in popularity. Well, Macron, you know, actually championed the working masses, which is kind of ironic insofar as his background. He's a stockbroker who used to work for the Rothschilds. All right. And, you know, he has a complete disconnect with what French working class people want. And if you remember the Jean, uh, Gilets Jaunes, uh, protest, which are the yellow vests. Okay, so I mean, initially that started as a tax protest, but then it morphed into many other issues that are really relevant with the French voters. It, it went into immigration, uh, the cultural change, Islamic terrorism, uh, and speaking of anti-Semitism, ironically enough, you know, France has the largest Jewish population in Europe outside of Russia, and many of the Jew- Jewish at- attacks on Jews in France. They're not exactly conducted by skinheads. Uh, that, that's a great point. Muslim, that, that's a fair point, Joseph, and that's something we don't hear often about. Joseph, thank you. Uh, and, and Matt, don't forget, we have that Oscar music for when the callers get on too long. Don't be afraid to use that. 800-848-WABC. Hey, we're going to talk about this um, very interesting UFO sighting uh, on the USS Kearsarge, a Navy warship, saw some objects they couldn't identify. We'll tell you about it with Dave Beatty straight ahead. WABC. Talk Radio 77. WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 77 WABC. The Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files. the other side of midnight if you were to pick one issue which seems to have been uh, once relegated to the fringes of organized society relegated to comic books late night radio shows science fiction novels and has all of a sudden become mainstream 
front page of the New York Times, coverage in the Washington Post, coverage on CNN, Fox News, 60 Minutes, you name it. It would be the issue of what we used to call UFOs, what we now call, what the government now refers to as UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. Well, there was a fascinating story on this front this week, and it was broken by a man who has been doing yeoman's work, not only in chronicling the UAP issue for a long time, but in terms of enlightening the public about what we know and what the government might know about these UAPs. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome David Beatty. He's a documentary filmmaker, and uh, his film, The Nimitz Encounters, was quite groundbreaking. We'll talk about that in a minute. David, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Hey, it's my pleasure, uh, Frank. appreciate you having me on to talk about this important topic. And it, it is Beatty, right? Like Warren Beatty or Ned Beatty, not Beatty? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. A lot of people, you know, phonetically, it looks like it's Beatty, but, um, you know, it is Beatty. So thanks for asking. <laughs> it, it should make it easier to sell the film rights if uh, uh, to any any future publications that you have, if it's a Beatty production, I would think. Now, um, <laughs> I know a lot of our listeners, even either people that pay super close attention to this stuff or people that uh, have only a passing interest, if that, in this stuff, Remember the front page of the New York Times from December of 2017 when these tic-tac-shaped objects appeared uh, to the USS Nimitz. And this was groundbreaking in terms of UAP coverage being taken seriously by mainstream news outlets. We learned in that same article and subsequently that the government had been funding this essentially UAP watching program called ATIP, and we're still getting documentation coming out about that. And uh, this is not something that the government was laughing off for the last 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, remind folks that might not remember what exactly happened with the Nimitz encounter back in 2004 that you made the documentary about. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and, and what you just said was probably, you know, what kind of shook me up into looking at this topic again, because I hadn't been, um, you know, researching UFO topics for quite the time. But when that article broke, it kind of kickstarted my interest once again. And as I was a, a MUFON field investigator back in the early 90s, I had just kind of uh, drifted away from the topic for quite the time and developed my career in television. But when I saw that, um, you know, article, I started researching it and uh, looking into the background of it. We found Another article that had been written in a fighter um, trade magazine that was much more in-depth um, by a former fighter pilot named Paco Chirichi in the magazine Fighter Sweep. And this had been published in 2015, so it just was out there, and no one had any idea about this case. But basically what it, what came, it, what it, what it amounted to was there was a, a, a workup training exercise going off the coast of San Diego, California, the Naval Operations Area there. And the Carrier Strike Group, which is a whole bunch of vessels that go out and train together, was led by the USS Nimitz aircraft carrier. So the, there's a big aircraft carrier that has F-18 Super Hornet jets on it and other aircraft. And then there's uh, support vessels like the USS Princeton, which is a cruiser, which was out there with them. And Probably for about a week in November of 2004, the Princeton was picking up these radar contacts that 
just um, were kind of uncorrelated. They just they weren't civilian aircraft. They couldn't figure out what they were, but they didn't really seem to pose a threat to the Princeton or the aircraft carrier. So the Navy sort of put that aside until the 14th when an air training operation was underway. And one of the senior chiefs on the Princeton um, contacted the captain and said, you know, we should take a look at one of these tracks that we have. And so he was given permission to uh, redirect one of the training exercises from the Nimitz to go look at this uh, uh, object that they had on radar. And so this was the Commander David Fravor flight, um, the Fast Eagle flight that went out there. And they flew out um, to this location where the radar um, contact was, and they didn't really see anything um, in the sky. But they did see a disturbance on the surface of the ocean at that time. Captain Fravor went down to take a look to see if he could see anything um, around this disturbance. Um, They thought perhaps it might have been an aircraft that went into the water, and that's what they were looking for. Um, But when they got a little closer, he noticed this white object that was moving around erratically above the whitewater disturbance. And that's the object that has become nicknamed the Tic Tac because it looked like this white cylindrical um, capsule-shaped craft, maybe 40 to 50 feet long, that reacted to his presence, according to him, and began to kind of come up from the surface, gaining an altitude and mirroring his own jet fighters maneuvers. And after several minutes, you know, we're a little bit unclear how long this happened, but it wasn't very long. This object took off and he said it was gone across the horizon and like shooting out of a gun. Um, And the other aviators kind of said that as well, that, that it was gone. It was just they lost contact with it. So that, that's in a nutshell what happened and what became, you know, this, the legendary Nimitz encounters that I based that little recreation I did on YouTube. So, And it's become very popular on YouTube and people can uh, watch it on there. Well, I'll ask you more specifics on how in just a minute. What were the results of your work, if any, if, if uh, in terms of other media coverage or government response to the interest in your documentary. What uh, sort mm-hmm. of ripple effect did that, did your work on this project have? Well, I think that, you know, it actually has become sort of a, uh, a cult classic, so to speak. It went viral. We're almost up to 6 million views um, now since I released it in 2018. And, you know, obviously I didn't do a lot of marketing. That was just organic um, you know, people going and, and watching it and shows like yourself mentioning it. So a lot of people saw it and I got a lot of contacts from that. The initial version of the film um, featured Commander Fravor's story. But from that, four or five or six other Navy veterans that were present on those vessels contacted me and wanted to kind of relate what their experience was. So I got to meet and talk to all these Navy veterans, including the senior chief on the USS Princeton, Kevin Day, and one of his assistants, um, the the um, technician, Gary Voorhees, that was in the combat information in the radar center there on the ship with Kevin. And one of the first things I learned um, that had not been reported anywhere was that people came aboard the ship after this and took some of the radar recordings. So Gary um, explained this to me. He didn't think it was anything special. I said, wait a second, can you explain that again? And he said that he was in charge of recording the, the age of spy one radar. And he also had, um, you know, the authority to record the radio communications and 
the cooperative engagement capability, which is another radar system. So he was sort of the computer tech, and he'd hit record on all this stuff during these training ops, and he recorded all the UFO stuff that day. Soon thereafter, he said um, people that were in plain clothes came onto the ship in helicopters and requested all these radar recordings. And in fact, they they took the radio communications and they stood there while he erased the blank disks that were still left over to make sure that there wasn't anything he was leaving there um, that might still have recordings on it. Very startling. Um, I also heard a very similar um, report from a gentleman that contacted me from the Nimitz that was in charge of the aviation tech technology on the E-2 Hawkeye early warning aircraft. These are sort of the radar planes in the sky. And, and this gentleman said that when the plane landed that day, because there was, you know, an E-2 in the air at the time, that they would recover these data bricks or recordings from the plane that would, again, have similar recordings. And that soon thereafter, people came to his shop and retrieved these objects, these um, classified data bricks or RMCs, as he called them. And he was quite sure that the people that came were not on the ship before. He told me that he believed that they were Air Force personnel based on their flight uh, suits that they, they were wearing. So, again, this kind of goes against some of the, the initial um, reporting on the case. And it's just unusual. Again, this is sort of, you know, uh, I guess you say anecdotal stories because I don't have a lot of people that are all um, backing it up. But quite independently, Patrick on the E-2s and Gary Voorhees on the Princeton both told a similar tale. And I've heard other cases um, or other stories from people there that um, sort of correlated with that same thing. Now, why they came and took that material, how they knew about it, and where it is today, I don't know. But it, that's kind of interesting. So. so if people want to watch this documentary on YouTube, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, it's quite simple, really. If you're just on YouTube and you type the Nimitz encounters, you'll it quite you know readily in the search function and um i would suggest there I, the channel is called the nimitz encounters on youtube so it's pretty easy to find um we're talking with david Beatty. he's the director a filmmaker who made this documentary which you can see on youtube the nimitz encounters really interesting i've watched it and it uh, really makes you think uh, let me ask you about the news this week which everybody is talking about this latest sighting um, at, on the USS Kearsarge. When did this happen and what happened exactly? Right. So this is a real, real recent case. And I have been following up on these Navy sightings or military sightings. Um, and the USS Kearsarge is a Navy, um, I guess you would call it a transport dock ship. And it's sort of an amphibious ship that has a flight deck and has a big well deck underneath where they can launch an amphibious um, craft. So the Navy was out there um, in, I think it was mid-October, conducting trains with the USS or the U.S. Marine Corps. Um, and the Navy and the Marine Corps conduct these training operations that are kind of like an amphibious craft um, marine expeditionary training where they work together when they're going to deploy overseas and they, they start um, with basic training. Um, they're firing guns on the deck of the ship. They're um, conducting, um, you know, uh, raiding the shore um, off of Cherry Point, Cherry Point, North Carolina, 
conducting, you know, amphibious landing training and uh, air, air training and so on. So they were out there in October of 2021. And, um, and I'll just back up that um, the reason I know about this, because people are like, well, why didn't we hear about this? Is because really it hasn't come out except for somebody that was on the ship sort of leaked this out. And I was contacted by a senior officer from the Marine Corps that's retired now that just wanted to relate this to me. He asked me if I was aware of this and I, I hadn't. So I kind of uh, did an interview with that gent and he uh, described the, the what, what happened. So going back to the cure sergeants out there in October, on the deck of the ship, um, they would sometimes park these um, all-terrain vehicles that the Marine Corps uses for uh, air defense, and they're called um, El Mattis. It's it's sort of a Polaris Razor type ATV, a four by four, um, you know, vehicle, and it has a radar mounted on it, and it has some other um, instrumentation. And they've been using these vehicles as um, counter drone or counter, you know, anti uh, air type uh, equipment. So the Marines that were on the ship were manning this truck on the deck and, you know, they were training, they were um, standing watch there at night on one of these occasions. And they began observing these two interesting lights that were following the ship. So they tried to uh, make contact or find out what these two lights were. And they said that they were probably about a half mile behind the ship and roughly uh, 200 feet in the air. And the description was they were probably about the size of an automobile uh, based on the observations. So these Marines thought that this must be some type of training evolution that since that's what they're doing out there, that they were being tested by the Navy perhaps or the Marine Corps. So they fired up the vehicle. They tried to get a radar track on these two objects and they couldn't get a radar track. And they looked through their optics, like thermal optics that they would have with them and the same thing, they couldn't see the the objects through the thermal camera, but when they looked with their eyes, they could. So they started just recording regular old video. Um, and I'm not certain if it was a camera on the truck or they were just using their, you know, cell phones or something, but they did, they were um, able to record video of the objects. So over the course of several nights of this happening, um, they went up the chain of command and they tried to figure out, you know, is this drones that we own that's part of a training uh, mission and we're just trying to uh, verify that that's what this is. We were unable to, you know, get a radar lock on them or disrupt them at all. Um, and, and they were said, they, the, the Marines and the Navy said, no, these are not ours. You know, th- this is not our aircraft. We're unsure of what you're looking at. Um, and one other point was, you know, the vehicle, the air air defense vehicle on the deck does have a um, anti-drone capability in a um, electronic weapons platform that is used for most likely taking out conventional drones, that it would um, jam the control channels of these drones and make them, you know, disrupt their flights. I am not certain if they tried to do that, but I imagine that they probably did. And um, that would be an interesting question for those Marines. Um, did it have any effect? Um, so, in, in you know, as this case kind of evolved, I learned that the Marines and the Navy did file 
a UAP report, um, since there's this mechanism now where military service units can um, file a report and then send in these reports. And I was told that they, in this case, they actually did complete a UAP report and they sent that along with this video um, describing the event and these, you know, to this day, as far as I know, these unknown objects that they were observing. And it's a little bit troubling, you know, that you have some type of vehicle that's uh, uh, tracking with and following a warship like that, that close. So, Oh, a- absolutely. A couple of questions based on what you just said. One, um, you talk about the source that informed you of this. He didn't just tell you about mm-hmm. it, though. He actually provided you with photographic evidence, right? No. Um, unfortunately, what I was told that, <clears throat> excuse me, he said that there was video evidence, but because of the channels that are available now with the military, I am pretty sure that those reports are classified immediately. So um, as far as the press or um, researchers acquiring that video, you know, we are trying using the freedom of information to get some requests out there to the Navy and to the Marines, seeing if we can get copies of the video. I have not received the response on that since it was uh, filed just recently. But there is so, video, um, uh, according to the source, though. Oh, uh, when I read this, re- read about this sighting in The Sun, and you were quoted as, as being the person that this information was given to, I could have mm-hmm. sworn I saw a photograph in that article in The Sun, which was also in the New York Post. Was that a recreation, or was that something else, or am I misremembering? Is yeah, that the I think so. You know, I, a, lot of, a lot of these papers and articles will – create an artistic rendition of what they thought it looked like. And I did see that uh, picture of a ship with two white lights, you know, but um, I'm pretty sure that was just an artistic representation. I see. Okay. Well, it goes to show my own naivete. I'm glad that I, glad (laughs) that I asked you the question. Um, There was, and we've seen this for many years with both commercial airline pilots naval pilots, Air Force pilots, there did seem to be this stigma about what reporting first, what we used to call UFOs, Mm -hmm. what we now call UAPs. Is that stigma gone now because of this new manner in which UAPs are reported to the military? No, I don't think it's gone at all. I mean, um, in talking to pilots, um, which I have talked to, you know, I hear over and over that they say that they all see this stuff and they none of them report it. And even in this case with the USS Kearsarge, I, I saw stigma in action where I was told that the person that was on that ship didn't want anyone to know about this and didn't want, I don't think that that person really wanted any attention brought to it because of the stigma. You know, for, for people that are in the military that perhaps are retiring and they're hoping to go into um, commercial aviation or other important jobs. I think that, you know, having this on your record is sort of like it could be in the military career suicide, for instance, to be the guy that canceled the training operation because you saw light in the sky. So mm-hmm. there's a, a reluctance, I think, to report this up the chain of command. If, if you know, the objects are not actually doing um, aggressive um, actions toward the vessel. In, in, in most of these cases that I've covered, these objects that they see just seem to be kind of observing like they're almost conducting surveillance, which leads me to, you know, put out there that could this be 
adversarial technology that is somehow right. That was my next question. Right, right. So, I mean, there, there's been a lot of evidence presented that, uh, for instance, in 2019 in the Southern California area, they had similar encounters with these what I would call drone-like objects, or as the logbooks state, UAS unmanned aerial systems or UAV unmanned aerial vehicles. That's how they were logging these things. And the Navy did conduct an investigation, which involved um, the Coast Guard as well, examining nearby, um, say, foreign flagged cargo and tankers that were in the shipping lanes and trying to see if there was any possibility that these drones, these alleged drones, had been launched from these cargo vessels as sort of surveillance craft maybe operated by for instance, China. Um, so that has the possibility of that type of behavior has been raised. It's just a little concerning if it's, you know, a hundred miles off our homeland, you know, like in our training um, area. So, so uh, again, um, I won't keep you and I hope you'll come back in the future. Sure. Obviously this is probably an impossible question for you to answer, but let me go ahead and ask you anyway. He, what do you think these objects are? Uh, do you, it, it sounds like you don't believe, based on what the Navy told the people that observed this, these objects on the mm-hmm. Kearsarge, that these are our own government. Could this potentially be another government, or could this mm-hmm. be something otherworldly? What's your best guess about mm-hmm. what these objects are? Well, you know, the descriptions that I've heard vary. The Nimitz encounter, you know, if you look at the video that I did, you can see that there's descriptions of maneuverability and flight characteristics that seem to defy conventional um, aircraft, you know, no flight surfaces, no lifting surfaces or engines um, were present then. And some of the radar tracks, um, the descriptions are uh, quite extraordinary. Then if you come fast forward to the 2019 and the, you know, the Kearsarge in 2021, I didn't read any kind of, you know, super um, extraordinary flight characteristics. The, the Marines on the deck did report that the, these objects were sort of doing these strange, um, they described them as, um, I forget what was the term, um, shackle turns. And I looked that up. And shackle turn is a military um, aviation term where the plane on the left goes and replaces the position of the um, aircraft on the um, right and the one on the right goes to the left. So they just cross each other in the middle, reversing position. And they said that the objects were doing that. But, you know, that doesn't preclude some type of um, drone. Um, most aircraft couldn't um, go slow enough to actually match the performance of what these guys were saying that, ship was going like 20 knots or something. So these objects were pacing the ship at 20 knots and most aircraft would have to go faster than that. But a drone on the other hand fits in that description. The fact that these guys might've been a hundred miles off the coast or so, you know, you know, what are drones doing out there if these are not military drones that are being operated by our, us. So that leaves the possibility that they're a uh, foreign adversary, you know, until we mm-hmm. rule that out, um, that has to be on the table. Now, you know, UAP are real, and the the decades and decades long reports of um, you know mass sightings of UAP or unexplained aerial, un, you know, unidentified aerial phenomena go back 
you know, you know, into antiquity almost. So I, I do believe in the reality of that. I think that they're unknown. I don't kind of jump, jump to the conclusion sure. that it's ET or, or the extraterrestrial hypothesis, but I don't know. I, I think that they're real. I don't know that there's an answer. And, I, and again, I don't know what the, the, the Navy encounters are. Mm. Last question, and I uh, appreciate you being so generous with your time. Do you want to encourage everybody to check out your documentary, The Nimitz Encounters? They could just search it on the YouTube. In fact, I'm going to link to it on my Facebook page. People could check it out right there, facebook.com slash Morano fan. Uh, let me ask you this, though. We got some other interesting news this week about a newly released Pentagon report that said some witnesses who reported UFO sightings also experienced injuries, including radiation burns, brain problems, damaged nerves, even one instance of an unexpected pregnancy. I mean, I'm sure you've seen the story. What's your initial take on a story like that? Well, it's true that there were these investigations, and um, the the Times reported that $22 million was spent, um, you know, for this program. And part of that um, part of that program actually involved a Las Vegas company called Bigelow Advanced Aerospace Space Studies, um, called like BASS, we just say. So um, multi-millionaire, billionaire um, entrepreneur Robert Bigelow had secured this contract for the initial one was for $10 million. And they began um, releasing and conducting these uh, uh, scientific studies. So they were as part of the contract for that one of these research studies was examining the physical effects of um, close proximity to these you know uaps and they were looking at historical cases and you know indeed it is true that in you know if you look in the past you can find um, cases where people came into proximity with these objects and then had physical effects for instance um, burns that might be similar to um, ionizing radiation burns and other uh, physical effects. So I think that's the paper that you're referring to, part of like uh, one of these papers called the Defense Information Research um, Documents. Uh, David, on that note, we're going to have to leave it there. I really enjoyed the sure. conversation. I hope we can do this again soon. Yeah, I'm always up to talk about this subject. I mean, I probably spend an inordinate amount of time talking about it, but hey, anytime. Same here. If anybody wants to comment on uh, any portion of my conversation with David Beatty, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead. WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Moreno, 77 WABC. You've got to accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, latch on to the affirmative, don't mess with Mr. In-Between. You've got to spread joy up to the maximum, bring gloom down to the minimum, have faith or pandemonium liable to walk up on the scene. 
Ella Fitzgerald offering some good advice there. Accentuate the positive and how. You know, it's funny. When I came in today, my wallet is very similar to the to the wallet that George Costanza has on Seinfeld. It's very, very thick. And so the other day when I was looking for something in here, I realized that I have a ton of stuff in there that's dated. I have all sorts of PBA cards and SBA cards and all these police law enforcement union cards from 2018, 2019, 20, uh, 2020, and 2021. And they were taking up a lot of space. So I, I, And old casino cards that are expired from the win in Las Vegas. I, it's, I've been carrying this around in my wallet since I was in Vegas in March a year ago. <laughs> it's been in there. And an expired uh, card from Atlantic City as well. So... I said I, I rearranged some of the stuff in there because once you take out a card or something that's been in there, then there's a risk that these other cards could sort of slip out out of place. So I rearranged with stuff in a way that makes sense. So then when I come in to the building, I keep my key for the floor in my wallet. So I just hold up my wallet to the door and the door opens. Well, I don't know if it's a reflection of my wallet being in a different order or something now, or maybe the key is not hitting the sensor the right way. But I got to tell you, when I came in last night, I was holding up my wallet to the doors. I always do. And instead of going the light going from red to green, which means you can come in, it was going from red briefly to green and then to blue. And I would keep trying on the green. It would only give me a half a second of green. And I, I'd try to open the door. It wouldn't open. And so it would go red to green to blue. And so it was seeing something in my wallet, but just not enough to open the door. I have to tell you, it was one of the most frightening moments of my life because I thought maybe they fired me and changed my – changed my the, un, they deaded my key without telling me. I said nobody. I figured I would have heard something about that. But uh, lo and behold, there's no one here doing the show instead of me. So I assume it has more to do with the rearranging of my wallet than any change in my job prospects. But I was genuinely scared there for a while because then there's another door that you have to use the key to go through. That wasn't working for me either. What a mama Luke. So uh, still here, though. That's the important thing. You always got to allow extra time. You always find a way to get in. All right, uh, coming up next hour, we have denunciations and Eric Siegel, uh, one of my favorite people to talk about the Supreme Court with. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Coming up, we're going to talk about the newest member of the Supreme Court, tell you everything that you need to know about her, and we're going to look at some ways that we might be able to reform the Supreme Court selection process in the future. It is uh, my... I'm always really excited to talk with Eric Siegel. 
He is the author of a couple of great books about about the Supreme Court. One is called Supreme Myths. One is called Originalism as Faith. So we're going to get into that. He also happens to be a uh, a law professor himself at the uh, at Georgia State University. So I'm looking forward to our conversation. But for now, this is the time that so many of you have come to look forward to. It is time for The Other Side of Midnight presents Denunciations. Ah, yes. I must begin by denouncing this vendor that the MTA hired. Now, this is very, very disconcerting. The vendor is called Verbosity, okay? Uh, It's a third-party vendor that the MTA uses. And what these jabronis did is they took the COVID test results and personal information of more than two dozen MTA employees and accidentally posted it online. Letters were sent to 31 transit workers whose names, genders, birthdays, phone numbers, and COVID test results were publicly accessible for several days through the Bing search engine. Bing, it's not a tribute website to Bing Crosby. It's a uh, search engine that people may want to use instead of Google. Um, A forensic evaluation by Verbosity concluded that the information had been accessed just once by a State Department of Health employee during a routine check. Well, thank goodness. Thank goodness. But these people could have had their identities stolen. And I think that is that is really problematic. And um, I think I'm denouncing verbosity, and I hope they're not used for future things. I must also denounce Disney. Now, if Disney wants to make an issue because of the don't say gay bill or things like that, okay, it's fine. That's their right. I don't have an issue with them being vocal about what they believe in. Fine. However, while they're doing that, they are expanding their operations in a whole bunch of other anti-gay countries. So they're in the midst of a showdown with the state of Florida over the don't say the so-called don't say gay bill. But it seems fine. Disney seems fine sending their customers and their children to a country where being gay is a crime. Disney is offering a couple vacation deals to Egypt through its Adventures by Disney program. So Egypt has criminalized sex between gay men. Um, To me, this is incredible hypocrisy. And uh, there are also a number of other countries that Disney has sought to expand in even beyond Egypt, that are very hostile. Uh, They're expanding their Disney Plus streaming services to over 10 anti-gay countries. Algeria, Egypt, Libya, Morocco, Oman, the Palestinian territories, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Tunisia, and Yemen. Those countries also outlaw homosexuality. So why is it okay 
to allow those residents to access Disney Plus, but not folks in Florida to uh, – why are they making an issue with Florida? I, I have a big, big problem with this. I, I, I find this incredibly hypocritical. I also want to denounce the Federal Bureau of Prisons. You know, every story about the Federal Bureau of Prisons, it really makes you realize this could very well be the most incompetent federal agency that we have. A mob hitman from upstate New York has escaped from federal custody in Florida. Dominic Taddeo fled from custody on Monday. He was noted as escaped on the Bureau of Prisons records and is now being sought by the United States Marshal Service. Do you know the resources that the taxpayers are now going to have to expend to find this guy? All because the Bureau of Prisons can't handle an adequate transfer or just keeping track of people that are in a halfway house. He had been transferred from a medium security prison to a halfway house in Orlando, and apparently he escaped. I guess he was upset about the uh, about the don't say gay bill in Florida. Um, I have to denounce this judge who is a real piece of work. Now, thankfully, this is not an American judge. A Swedish Supreme Court judge has been fined for stealing meatballs from a shop. This particular judge was fined um, 50,000 kroner uh, when she was caught red-handed in this grocery shop in Stockholm shortly before Christmas. She resigned her post from her post in February when the uh, press first started reporting about this. And... Uh, you really have to wonder what goes on in someone's brain to think, oh, I'm a Supreme Court judge. Let me steal some meatballs from a grocery store. Must be suffering from Stockholm Syndrome. Uh, I want to denounce Jamie Patrone. This is another real piece of work. Jamie Patrone is an administrator at, uh, at Yale University. And... You know, it goes to show these colleges are taking in so much money, they don't even know where this money is going. Um, this Ye- former Yale University administrator has pled guilty to stealing $40 million from the school in order to li- live lavishly. So she's admitted defrauding the school of more than $40 million by reselling electronics purchased with school funds. So Jamie Patrone was the director of finance and the lead administrator at Yale Medical School's Department of Emergency Medicine. She stole the money over eight years. She used the funds for various personal expensive expenses, including expensive cars, real estate, travel, including three Connecticut properties that she owned or co-owned. Boy, she got away with it for eight years. My goodness. I want to denounce the 
Cadbury egg. I have nothing against the Cadbury egg as a candy, but I do have something about the Cadbury cream egg. And now, I, I don't love chocolate. I like dark chocolate, but other than dark chocolate, I don't, I don't care for chocolate. And, but the Cadbury cream egg is one of those chocolate candies on Easter that I could, I could deal with. And now... There are over 200 million of these Cadbury cream eggs sold every year. But now, Channel 4 in the UK has an investigative program called Dispatches. They uncovered the shocking child labor abuses behind the the whole Cadbury supply chain. During their investigation in Ghana, West Africa... They met with children as young as 10 performing back-breaking work on cocoa farms in the blazing heat for up to nine hours a day. Small children wielding three-foot machetes, hacking through weeds, no protective, pro, uh, no protective clothing, no protective gear. They're cracking pods with these long, short, sharp knives. And many of them are sustaining serious injuries. Desperate farmers are paid less than two euros a day for the cocoa they sell to the U.S. company that run, that owns Cadbury. The farmers are paid so little, they can't even afford to hire adults to work on the farm, so they have to use their children. This is awful. I could tell you I will not be purchasing Cadbury cream eggs for anybody this year, I usually will get candy for the, the women that I see on Easter, my sister, my sisters-in-law, my wife, my stepmother, my mom. Uh, this year, I will not be getting anybody any Cadbury cream eggs, nor nor for the staff here as well. Uh, I want to denounce Cumulus. Now, Cumulus used to run, they used to own this radio station, and I never worked here under Cumulus. I worked here when we were owned by Disney. I worked here when we were owned by Citadel, and now I work here that we're owned by uh, Red Apple. I never worked here under Cumulus. But everything that I've ever learned about Cumulus, and this is probably an unwise thing for me to say in, in the fact that I, if I have to ever go to them begging for, their, for a job, this has got to be one of the worst-run, most incompetent companies in the entire world. And they're also... Totally lily-livered. They fired this radio talk show host named uh, in in Washington at a very big station in Washington called WMAL, called Amber Athey. Uh, you know why? Not for anything she said on the radio. Amber Athey tweeted that she w- that uh, Kamala Harris was wearing a brown suit during the State of the Union. She said. Kamala looks like a UPS employee. What can Brown do for you? Nothing good, apparently. Now, UPS, their tagline is, or at least was, what can Brown do for you? So she's saying she looks like somebody that works at UPS because she's wearing a brown suit. They fired her because they said it was racist. This is nuts. Um, this is absolutely crazy. This is no reason to fire someone. If you are going to fire her for something, 
fire her for something she said on the radio, not on Twitter. To me, this is totally inappropriate. And Cumulus, I do denounce you. I want to denounce, uh, now I hate to do this because this person probably is suffering from any number of mental illnesses or disorders, but I want to denounce the man who thought it was a good idea to climb the cables of the Brooklyn Bridge yesterday. Yesterday at 7.15 in the morning, this fella climbed the cables of the Brooklyn Bridge and shut down two lanes of traffic in the middle of the morning commute. Now, thankfully, the first responders were Johnny on the spot. They were there. They climbed after him. They brought him to safety. Uh, he was taken to the hospital. He fell in his 20s, apparently, for psychiatric evaluation. I feel terrible that he's dealing with these psychiatric issues, but I feel a lot worse when he's inconveniencing so many New Yorkers trying to get to work. I have to, penultimately... I have to denounce, and I take no pleasure in doing this, and this is also very risky. I have to denounce our program director, Matt Meany. Now, Matt Meany has been doing a great job as program director. I think he's doing, and he's a young guy. He started out, when I met him, he was a weekend board op. And he's really come such a long way. He's a very talented radio professional. And I think he's done a lot better in this role than a lot of people expected. But Last week, I thought he was pulling an April Fool's joke on us. So we have a standing meeting at 7 a.m. every day. 7 a.m. So Molly, Matt, Philippe, who was here, we're all waiting around. Alex Barnard. We're all waiting around for this meeting at 7 a.m., which Matt Meany reiterated via email the night before was taking place. So we waited around for two hours. That's two hours we could have been home sleeping or doing anything else instead of just waiting around. And then all of a sudden, and keep in mind, we got an email the night before reminding us, yes, Virginia, there is a meeting. And then all of a sudden, 710 comes around, no meeting. I'd move my car into a parking garage. 715 comes around, no meeting. And then we get an email, sorry, I just woke up. No meeting today. We were sitting around here for two hours and 15 minutes before we were told that there was going to be no meeting. Now, that's no way to treat people. How about, like, if you're making people stick around two hours after their shift, you get an alarm clock. And you get a smart speaker as a backup alarm. And use your mobile phone as a triple backup. You think it's easy to work these hours that we're working? No, but we do it. You know how many times I've been late for this show at 1 a.m.? Zero. One time was awfully hairy, but zero. Um, I don't think it's too much to ask that if you schedule a meeting at 7 a.m. and make people stick around for two hours, you show up. Now, unless it was an April Fool's joke. If it was an April Fool's joke, then it was it was very effective. It was very funny. I want to denounce Scranton, Pennsylvania, and a big apology to uh, both President Biden and the good folks over at uh, Dunder Mifflin, Scranton. The there apparently Scranton is the very worst city in the country 
for allergies. Now, I don't suffer from allergies, knock on wood, but I have so many friends and family that do. And the top 10 most challenging places to live with seasonal allergies are Scranton, Wichita, Kansas, McAllen, Texas, Richmond, Virginia, San Antonio, Texas, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, Hartford, Connecticut, Buffalo, New York, New Haven, Connecticut, and Albany, New York. But uh, so my heart goes out to the people that deal with seasonal allergies and are in Scranton. But uh, according to the criteria and the environmental conditions in that city, it is the worst city for seasonal allergies. Well, there's going to be a new justice on the Supreme Court. What does that mean? What's going to change? What are the political implications? What are the legal implications? We'll get into it with one of my favorites, Eric Siegel, straight ahead. If you, you want to stay in touch, by the way, you can find me uh, on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's uh, Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. Or you can email me, Morano at WABCradio.com. Eric Siegel, straight ahead. WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, it's official. Judge Brown Jackson is now Justice Brown Jackson, here to break us this down for us, what this means for the future of the court, if anything, how to improve the Supreme Court selection process in the future, and what the implications of this might be politically and legally, is one of my favorite scholars when it comes to the Supreme Court, Eric Siegel. He's a law professor at Georgia State University. He's host of a terrific podcast called Supreme Myths, and an author whose latest book I've been enjoying very much. It's called Originalism as Faith. Professor Siegel, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thanks, Frank. It's been too long. We um, Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, it's my my con, my conversion to nocturnal hours doesn't suit all, <laughs> all of my favorite guests that well. So it's great to talk with you. I can't imagine uh, breaking this down with anyone else. So uh, the confirmation of Judge uh, Judge Jackson, is this the is she going to be the greatest Supreme Court justice ever or the worst? Yeah, um, let me make two quick points that are not particularly controversial. And then I'll throw some really controversial takes at you, okay, um, that I've been writing about over the last couple of weeks. First, she's a wonderful person. She's going to be a very good justice. She deserves it. She's qualified. So that's one. Two, it's nice to have a black woman to serve as a role model for um, other, you know, black girls and everything. And I'm, I'm totally happy about that. And that's a great thing. So those are two things that I think are pretty incontrovertible. Now, what these last three weeks have shown us, the last... 200 years have shown us, but the last three weeks especially, our Supreme Court is broken. People, she's going to change nothing when it comes to important votes for like, I don't know, three decades. I mean, we have five conservatives, you know, who are very young other than Justice Thomas. So um, liberals and progressives are really happy about this. I'm glad they, uh, but, but it means nothing in terms of abortion, affirmative action, campaign finance reform, any issue you care about, this is irrelevant. But frankly, the more important take is this. Our confirmation process is totally broken because the Supreme Court is broken. 
and you and I have talked about this before. But here's my evidence for how we know the confirmation process is broken and the court is broken. They all have to lie, Frank, and they all do. She lied. Alito and Roberts lied. Kagan lied. They all lie during the confirmation process because they all say the same thing. They all say it. Liberals, this is not a partisan take. They all say, I am going to interpret the law, not make the law. It's not my job to make the law. It's my job to interpret the law, and that's what I'm going to do. None of them believe it. They're all lying. And the fact that they have to lie to get on the court is not a reflection on the process. It's a reflection on our court and how badly misguided the American people are when it comes to this Supreme Court of the United States. Now, your listeners may think, ah, he's some progressive liberal who's mad. Frank, I was saying this in 2012. I was saying this in 1993. You know that. I've been saying this for a very long time. No, that's for sure. Um, I want to ask you about some of the issues that you just touched upon, including how yeah. to improve this process going forward. But first, a couple of issues related to Justice Jackson specifically. Uh, the conservative senators that were part of her confirmation process, uh, Senator Senator Ted Cruz, Senator Lindsey Graham, who's voted to confirm a number of Democratic nominees before, uh, Senator Josh Hawley, they all seemed to try to paint the picture of her being soft on crime in general and soft on pedophilia related crimes specifically. When you look at her sentences, when you look at the recommendations by the prosecutors and the pre-probationary reports for those sentences, do you think there's any credence at all to what those conservative senators were trying to raise? Zero. Um, let, let, me, let me say that Democrats have raised silly and crazy issues before as well. So I don't want to be partisan here. No, there's no. First of all, she comes from a law enforcement family. I mean, she's the, the sentencing guidelines issue. The reason they were able to make some hay with their constituencies about the soft on child pornography, child molesters is because the sentencing guidelines issues are complicated. They're difficult, Frank, and they really can't be explained in sound bites. And that's the problem. They don't have time to have real conversations. We did, we did with Judge Bork. There were real conversations with Judge Bork. That was the last time. And now they didn't care about her. They knew they couldn't defeat her, that the votes weren't there. They knew that from the very beginning. Everything every senator says in those hearings, Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, and then a few moderates we still have in this world, um, was meant not to do anything helpful for this process but to get them votes back home. And so, you know, Ted Cruz, uh, well, you and I are going to disagree about Ted Cruz probably. Um, but the more he can make Democrats appear to be soft on crime and, 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 and liberal, and, you know, Texas is doing all kinds of crazy things with race that New York would never do. Um, so it's all about pandering to the base, and that's part of the problem. It's that we're not, they don't really care what the candidate thinks. They're not going to find out what the candidate thinks. And by the way, ever since Judge Bork, Every candidate has refused to answer any serious question. I've written a lot on that question, Frank. Oh, I, I know. Uh, I, yeah. The um, the uh, the piece that you wrote in uh, on the eve of just now Justice Kagan's confirmation was yes. uh, really groundbreaking in terms of the fact that these nominees have opinions about everything. They should actually be able to say what some of those opinions well, are without worrying well, about their uh, Supreme Court spot going away. Well, thank you. You are well prepared. Thank you for remembering that. Um, my, the, the, main sound, the main point I can make quickly there is 
No one's asking for any promises. That would be inappropriate. We agree on that, right? Nobody's asking for any commitments. Everybody agrees on that. But there's no reason a nominee can't say, I've been in law for 30 years. I've been a professor. I've been a judge. Or I've been a prosecutor or whatever. Of course I've thought about abortion. What lawyer in America hasn't thought about abortion? And I have opinions about it. Now, when I see a case in front of me with real parties and I have to actually make the decision, I, I, I might change my mind. And I certainly reserve the right to change my mind. But of course I have opinions. And here they are. What, that would be real, right? And what's wrong with that? I don't understand what's wrong with right, that. Right, right. No, I, neither do I. Um, last question about Justice Brown uh, Jackson specifically. and then, Actually, She's not technically a justice until Breyer retires. I way. see. Okay, so when will that be? Help us out here. I think he said the end of the term. Which, which raises some interesting issues, by the way. But go on, ask well, your question. Uh, so, and, and for those of us that are laymen, when does the term end? The la- last day of June, most of the time. Got it. Okay, so come the summer, I guess, she would be yes. Justice yes. Jackson. Got it. Yes. Now, the other issue that a lot of our listeners uh, took issue with, and it's kind of one of these sexy issues that's easy to understand, it's easy to form opinions about, and doesn't necessarily have much bearing on future Supreme Court cases, is her answer to Senator Blackburn on the question of what is a woman. And she basically didn't answer the question and said, I'm not a biologist. A whole bunch of listeners called in and said, well, you know, if she can't even even answer that question. Is that really somebody that's in a position to be on the Supreme Court? How did you think she handled that question of what is a woman? Uh, that's complicated. Um, that's complicated. I, I, I think it's a silly question, first of all. If what, the, if what the senator was getting at were her views on transgender issues, then they should have asked her about transgender issues. I, you know, um, because, Frank, I got to tell you something, and it's hard for me, but um, I have teenage children. Um, I have a 31-year-old, but I also have a, 14, a 13 and a 14. Half of my children's friends identify as gender non-binary. It's just a fact. And if that's happening in Atlanta, I am sure it's happening in New York, um, especially in the more liberal parts. And these young people say that there are men, there are women, and then there are people who, who, who identify as both or neither or on a spectrum. I think that's a whole very, trust me, as a parent, I can tell you, it's a complicated conversation. It's difficult. It's hard. Has nothing to do with her being a Supreme Court justice. So that, now, if they asked her, do you think transgender kids should have rights to use whatever the bathroom of their choice or play on sports teams? An issue, by the way, I find very difficult. Um, then, then she would have not answered the question like she didn't answer any questions like they never do. But that would have been honest. That would have been like, tell me where you stand on transgender issues. And she would have said they could come before me, so I won't make a comment. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least we'd be talking honestly. At least we'd have an honest conversation. Um, I, I am telling you, Frank, five years ago, I could have defined a woman, and today I cannot. <laughs> I, I can't. Un- understandable. I can't. Believe me, it does, uh, yeah. it does certainly get, uh, get complicated. Now, uh, yeah. and by the way, people just t- tuning in, we're talking with uh, Professor Eric Siegel. He's a professor at uh, Georgia State University, also the author of a couple of terrific books on the Supreme Court, the latest of which is called Originalism as Faith. Now, uh, let's go back to what we were talking about, uh, how these hearings have morphed into these very sophisticated lawyers who have opinions about everything, not taking a position on anything. Did that yep. begin with the Bork confirmation? Uh, if so, how did that start and why did that start? So this that so you're asking a, a complicated question that I don't have a radio soundbite answer for. But um, 
Justice O'Connor came to my law school twice, actually. But the second time she came, someone asked her the question, when did the confirmation hearings die? Like, you know, when, when did they become a joke? When did they become this awful? And, and, and she was here long after Bork. You know, she was here when she retired. And, and everybody thought she would say with Judge Bork. She didn't. She said they died when my confirmation hearing as the first woman was put on television. Mm. Interesting. And it was a, yes, that's what I thought too. She didn't say it in any kind of arrogant way. You know, she was just saying, T, and, 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 I, and I think what she, and then she went on to say, once you put it on television, then the merits of the candidate or nominee becomes much less important to the senators than what they think their constituents will react to. And I think she's probably right. Now, the lesson from the Bork hearings some people took was don't answer any questions. That wasn't the right lesson. The right lesson was he was a swing vote. So we've only had a couple of those, right? I mean, Kennedy got that. And then, you know, when Justice Scalia died, there was going to be a swing vote. And, of course, we know what happened there. McConnell wouldn't let mm-hmm. Democrats do it because it was so important. Non-swing vote justices are treated somewhat differently than swing vote justices. Bork was going to be the swing vote. I, so, and you know my feelings about this. Uh, leaving aside Judge Bork's record as a judge, which is, let's leave that aside, as a court of appeals judge, as an academic, as a famous law professor, I agree with everything Bork said. Bork said the Supreme Court shouldn't decide any laws unconstitutional unless the plaintiff shows clearly that it's inconsistent with text or history. That's, that was his stick. I agree with that. <laughs> I think that's the right answer. Um, I'm the only progressive you're going to meet who's thought that for 30 years, but I thought that for 30 years. Um, no, I think I think Hunter is right. I think T, I mean, I wouldn't take him off TV because that's a democracy problem, too. But the problem is the television. The problem is Democrats and Republicans playing to their constituencies as opposed to trying to find out, is this a person we really want on the Supreme Court of the United States? I think that's the problem. Going back to uh, Judge Jackson, Mm -hmm. the the president was very vocal, even during the campaign, that he wanted to appoint a woman of color for a a Supreme Court position. Now, do you think he would have been better off and maybe the country would have been better off if he had not made that declaration publicly and just said he was going to appoint the most qualified person and then appointed Judge Jackson and said, this is the most qualified person. She happens to be a woman of color. That's that's a triggering question for me. (laughs) I'll, I'll tell you why. Because George Bush, the first, stood up and replaced Clarence, uh, um, Justice Thurgood Marshall, Marshall. Right. Marshall, the first black Supreme Court justice, and the man who litigated Brown versus Board of Education, which ended segregation. Um, I think Marshall was an American hero for his litigation on race. He he was a justice who just voted his politics all the time, like they all do. Um, when Bush said Clarence Thomas was the most qualified man in America for the job, everybody laughed, including conservatives. He wasn't. He wasn't close. It wasn't a close call. Um Judge Jackson has, has a different record, though, and, and I mean, I mean, a much different record than Clarence Thomas did. Um, I would, I, I've been going back and forth on this. Um, if I, I think making it that public that quickly that early was a mistake, there was no reason to do it. Just pick her. I don't, the, you know, little black girls who see a black female Supreme Court justice, they don't care if this was announced a year ago right. or you know, they don't care. And I think it, it. I'm just talking politically now. I think politically it was a mistake. 
That's what I think. In terms of, you've talked a lot about the lack of diversity. I mean, on the, it may be clear. Not, uh, the mistake wasn't picking her. The mistake was announcing, announcing her right. only a black woman. Agreed, yeah. agreed. Uh, yeah. You've been very vocal about the lack of diversity on the court, but the way that you've talked about it doesn't necessarily mean by race or gender. You've talked about the lack of academic diversity. Now, uh, eight of the nine justices will have come from one of the two same, uh, one of the same two schools. Uh, and the lack of diversity of experience. Uh, there has not been a lot of uh, people on the court that have actual experience in a courtroom. There haven't been a lot of people that have come from outside the Court of Appeals. Judge Jackson has some experience in the courtroom, and she actually has some experience as a trial judge, actually hearing cases, including those aforementioned controversial uh, child molestation cases or pedophilia cases that I referenced earlier. Do you? Does that give you any, any solace, the fact that she does have a little bit more courtroom experience than the average Supreme Court justice does nowadays. It, it gives me a lot of solace. Um, and, and plus, what she was, a, you know, I think her experience is much more diverse than most, you know, than, than, than let's say Kagan's or Scalia's were, you know, much more diverse. Um, and having, a, I mean, I do think having seasoned litigators like Ginsburg and Marshall, who, and John Roberts, who may have been the best oral advocate ever in front of the Supreme Court, or one of them, top 10. Um, I think having experienced litigants and litigators and advocates makes sense. Um, but, but you know what, Frank, I, 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 I want to be clear in my message because we don't get to talk very often. The court is broken. The confirmation process is broken. Nothing she's going to do is going to change that. Um, and it's not broken because there are six conservatives and three liberals. It is broken because they're not judges. And it, as long as we treat them as judges, everything goes. You know, Frank, the public went crazy in 1857 when the court said Congress couldn't end slavery in the territories. The public went crazy in the 1920s and 30s when the court was striking down minimum wage laws and overtime laws and all this stuff they shouldn't have been doing. The court went, the public went crazy, and Nixon used it with with Roe versus with I'm sorry with Miranda, and then and then Reagan used Roe, you know, and and insistence United was a big thing for Hillary. It lost, but who knows? This has been going on too long. They keep overstepping. They keep doing too much. And no amount of experience. My litmus test, if I were a senator, would be um, your honor or your, you know, your whoever, your candidate. Are you going to strike down a law? That, it, it, what degree of certainty do you have to be a law is unconstitutional before you strike it down? The pat answer is going to be, well, pretty certain. You know, No, you should be unbelievably certain because this is a law passed by the voters or is a decision by the governor or the president or whatever. And you're an unelected life tenure judge. Right. If if the if Congress uh, passes a law without a constitutional amendment, adding a hundred and first senator, that's clearly in yeah. as to use Hamilton's phrase, irreconcilable variance with the Constitution. You're, good, Frank. you're really good. Frank. I, I know it all from reading you. I tell you, and listening to the Supreme Myths podcast. A uh, uh, couple of quick questions I want to throw at yeah. you before we run out of time. Yeah. I was listening yeah. to Mick Mulvaney on uh, John Katzmatidis' radio show last night on our station. And he said something that I largely agree with. He said, look, this is not probably not the kind of person that I pick, but Biden won the election. I'm in the minority in Republicans. I still think 
um, that advised consent is there to make sure that you don't get people who are corrupt, people who are woefully underqualified. I wouldn't ever nominate this um, this uh, person to the uh, to the to the to the Supreme Court. Neither would would Pete. Neither would any Republican. But we lost an election, and the the president should be entitled to nominate the the person or persons that he sees fit. If that person is qualified and not corrupt and not his brother-in-law and all those types of things. I think you're probably entitled to have the Supreme Court nominee that he likes. It seems like through a lot of our country's history, that was the case. Even someone who was as polarizing as Scalia was uh, confirmed with 98 or 99 votes. Why did that change? When did senators start voting against justices because of their political differences rather than concerns about character or lack of qualifications? Right. My, um, I hope your audience won't hold me to this, but I think Lindsey Graham, this is the first Democrat or the first person Lindsey Graham has not voted for. I think I could be wrong about that. If it's not the first, it may be the second. You know, he's he has voted to improve almost all of them. Um, and of course, Joe Biden, people don't remember this. Clarence Thomas does not get confirmed if Joe Biden doesn't run those hearings the way he did, because there was a woman in Washington, D.C., waiting to testify and corroborate Nita Hill's testimony. And, and Biden wouldn't let her testify. And if that had happened, I don't think he gets approved. It changed somewhere after Roberts and Alito. Um, I'm not sure exactly when. But, I mean, the fact that all 11 Republican members of the Judiciary Committee voted against this woman is crazy. I mean, she's clearly qualified. Um, Gorsuch, I think, was clearly qualified. And a lot of Democrats voted against him. I don't like Neil Gorsuch. But he was clearly by any metric, qualified to be on the Supreme Court of the United States. I mean, he'd been a court of appeals judge. He'd been a smart, before that, he'd been other, clearly qualified. Um, we can debate Kavanaugh and, you know, what happened there. But it happened recently. And, and throughout most of American history, if a nominee was not going to get the votes, they wouldn't have a hearing. They would know ahead of time, kind of. If a nominee had a hearing, most of the time, like you said, there have been exceptions, of course, but they had been confirmed overwhelmingly. Scalia is not a good example because he was touted as the first, he was the first Italian-American. Mm-hmm. And also he wasn't a swing, he was replacing a conservative, so that wasn't a controversial thing. There have been controversial nominations, but not like we have today. And now it's just a partisan showdown, right? Whoever, I mean, get three Republicans voted for her, okay, but... Overall, it's a partisan showdown. But, but Frank, it's not the process that's broken. It's the court that's broken. I know a lot of that has to do with the justices striking down laws that were passed by democratically elected legislatures. How much of that also has to do with life tenure? A lot, because um, I know personally a lot of court of appeals judges and a lot of federal district court judges, which are really plum jobs. And they have life tenure. And if you're on the Court of Appeals, Frank, 99% of your cases don't get to the Supreme Court. So you have the final say 99% of the time, effectively. Now, of course, the most important cases go, but not all of them. And psychologically, unreviewable power plus life tenure is an insane idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I mentioned this once before. Can I drive another one minute to go? Yeah, please. One more minute. So I was very lucky for 13 years. The dean of my law school was also my closest friend. It's good to have the dean be your closest friend. It's a nice thing. Um, and it worked out really well. And, and objectively, he was a great dean. He built us a brand new building in a, in a recession. It was all great. He had to answer to the provost, who had to answer to the president, who had to answer to the Board of Regents. I would have loved my, my friend to be dean for the, for the rest of my life. But 
Would I have given him life tenure? Not in 10,000 years. Because you give any – my dad was a CEO. He had to answer to the board of directors. You don't give people a job for life. <laughs> By the way, I have a job for life, and if I screw up really badly. But the good news is I have no power, and no one cares what I say. <laughs> but don't give important people a job for life. It's not – the head of your radio station, maybe you love him or her. Would you give him a job for life? Well, our, look, our owner, uh, John Katsimatidis, I would give him a job for 10 lifetimes. He's the only okay. thing standing between me and uh, being homeless. So absolutely, <laughs> uh, for the sake of my four-month-old, he should have a job for life. Uh, I, I have to run um, very yeah. quickly, very quickly. Yeah. We have a lot yeah. of people that identify as conservatives that listen to this show. And yeah. they've been almost trained uh, to believe that they are originalists. Your whole book, your, your most recent book, Originalism as Faith, it takes apart the whole doctrine of originalism, if it even exists. In a nutshell, and again, maybe we can do an, a lengthier interview just focused on your book. What's wrong with originalism? What's wrong with applying the Constitution as written and not adding your own personal preferences to it, which is what I think a lot of people who call themselves originalists believe? So... What I've written in my book and other places is originalism plus great deference to the elected branches is actually good. In other words, unless the plaintiff shows that the law in question either violates the clear text, which never happens, Frank, because the text is never clearer, free speech, equal protection, due process, establishment of religion. These aren't phrases that lead to clarity or really clear history. Then judges should stand down. The problem is your listeners may be originalist, and I believe they are, but there's never been a Supreme Court justice who's originalist. Because if you had unreviewable power and a job for life, you would just do what you think is best. And that's what they do. Um, that's what they do. But the real answer to your question is, what does it mean to be originalist? We know free speech applies to the Internet. Of course it does. How? There's nothing in 1789 to help us answer that question. Nothing. Not a syllable. Nothing in 1789 tells us. President Obama assassinated an American citizen having lunch in Yemen. He was a terrorist, but no court ever said that. I think Obama made a mistake. I think it was unconstitutional. A lot of people disagree with me about that. That's fine. Nothing in 1789 tells us what a president can do with a drone killing a terrorist who could blow up New York with a cell phone. Nothing. So, and and, and that, that's why originalism doesn't work right. unless you do my approach. You, the plaintiff, have a heavy burden of proof. Show us as an original matter this is unconstitutional. If you don't, you lose. I'm in favor of that, but none of the justices are. Yeah, none well, it's difficult clear. to see where the decisions like Citizens United and uh, Bush versus Gore fit into an originalist mindset. Yes. That's for sure. All right, uh, Professor Siegel, there's a, a ton of other questions that I have for you. Uh, we're going to have to save them for next time. Thank you so much for joining me on the radio. Frank, I swear I got one quick thing for you. I got to tell you, I do, I do, I do, I do 100 interviews a year. You're the best prepared radio guy I know. Uh, one of them. We're tied. You're tied. You're tied with my friend Pete Dominic. He's I, the best prepared I'm a big guy. fan of Pete Dominic, so uh, <laughs> I'll, I'm honored to be in that category. Thank you, <laughs> Professor Siegel. Yeah. Eric Siegel, the book is, it's pretty short, too, so you, you, it won't take you long to read, but it, you'll learn a lot from it. And it's written in a manner that laymen, even like me, can understand. Originalism as faith. And if you haven't read his previous book, Supreme Myths, uh, I highly recommend it. This is The Other Side of Midnight. You want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. 
It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Terrell, you're all I need to get by. All I need is some listeners, and uh, maybe ideally some callers. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. We would ask kindly that you uh, support our program by following me on all forms of social media. I'm on Facebook at uh, Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. That's Facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O-Fan. On Instagram, which I call Instantgram, as a tribute to what Dan Rava called it eight years ago, uh, at MoranoVision. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Vision. The show also has an Instagram page, 77WABCOSOM, for the other side of midnight. And there's some great videos on there. Um, a lot of people have been asking what's happened to the live videos. Well, you can still see videos. We put them up on that Instagram page. So it's 77WABCOSOM. But I'll just add that if you go to my Instagram page right now, you will be able to see a photo of my son, Carmine, with his grandfather, my father, Carmine. So you could see both Carmine's Morano. And they're both wearing like an Irish walking cap. So it's it's almost like a, a, a Vinnie Chin Giganti cap. But they both wear ma- wore matching hats yesterday afternoon. We got a photo. Now, the thing with me is, in order to see all the photos that I post, you have to follow me everywhere. So on Twitter, at Frank Morano, that's Frank Ohm, M-O-R-A-N-O, I just posted a photo from a day or two ago. Of the Carmine's Morano, Carmine William Morano and Carmine Anthony Morano, without any hats at all. So you could find that on Twitter at Frank Morano. So you want to see them with hats? Go to Instagram, Morano Vision. You want to see them without hats? Go to Twitter at Frank M O R A N O. 800-848-WABC. Al is in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Hey, good morning, Mr. Morano. Good morning. Uh, Two things. Uh, first off, uh, I would say that Scalia, to some degree, Thomas, were originalist. You know, I would say. Well, you, you got to read um, the book, but that's why I pointed that out towards the the end because they both claim to be originalists. But um, if you're the, like the philosophy of originalism, and again, that's why I spent ten seconds on it, not not twenty minutes. I wanted to talk mostly about uh, Justice Jackson. But if the philosophy of originalism is 
interpret the Constitution as written. Look, there are certain things in the Constitution that are very clear. For instance, it says there are only two senators per state and there's only 100 senators. That means, you know, because there's 50 states. Right. So that means if, if Congress wanted to pass legislation saying, you know what, now we have 101 senators. They can't do that, and the Constitution plainly tells them that they can't. But when it comes to whether or not Barack Obama can assassinate an American citizen with a drone, that's not... That's that's not mentioned in the Constitution. It also wasn't anticipated. Now, Citizens United, you can agree with the decision. You can disagree with the decision. I disagree with it. But I I don't know how you can say Scalia and Thomas that both voted in the affirmative on Citizens United. I don't know how you could say that's an originalist interpretation. Now, let's say you're saying, well, that's free speech. Uh, well, okay, that's one interpretation. That's not how the founders interpreted free speech. Then there's no way at all that you can interpret Bush versus Gore and the people that voted for, for Bush on the court in an originalist manner. So I know, yeah, like- I know Scalia and Thomas call themselves originalists, but there's decision after decision in which that label just doesn't apply. May, may I add also, uh, I've been following you for several years now. Uh, last month or two, your interviews, just your whole game, uh, the way you proceed, letting people speak, asking the right questions, being prepared, you're top of the game. I'm talking about this whole country. Uh, in every major market, I mean, I'm, I'm not listening to everybody and everyone. I just got to say, vast improvement and just a one. And you let this guest, who's very humble, even though he's, uh, you know, uh, a real intellectual, you just made it absolutely beautiful. I want to just say, really, really well, that's very kind of you. Thank you very much. That's that's very nice of you. Thank you very much, Al. I appreciate your patronage and what a supporter you've been of this show. So thank you. Uh, Mike is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Mike. Uh, Good evening, Frank. I wanted to comment on what your earlier guest said about there being a stigma in the military about reporting um, UFOs. Uh, There was a made-for-TV movie based on – it was a fictional movie. It wasn't supposed – it wasn't claimed to be based on anything real, but it was starring Glenn Ford and David Soul of Starsky and Hutch, and it was about these Air Force pilots who witnessed a UFO and reported it. And when they landed, they were immediately sequestered and uh, they were interrogated and and they were trying to convince the pilots that they didn't see what they saw. Mm. And uh, what's the name of that film? Do you remember? You know, I don't remember the name. It had to be late 70s, early 80s. It was a made for TV ABC movie. And uh, Glenn Ford played their commanding officer who who tried to. It looks uh, like it was the disappearance of flight 412. Oh, I don't. I don't recall. Yeah, it the looks name. that like. Yeah, with uh, that looks like what it is. It looks, looks, this looks great. I'm going to try and get a hold of this movie. But, but uh, Glenn Ford played their commanding officer who was trying to uh, uh, get to the bottom of what was going on. And then it, you know, it, it, it at the very end, you know, they they tell you what happened to the people, and it was like, you know, Glenn Ford got, you know, uh, uh, demoted or got a, a rotten assignment, and you know, something like that with the others. You know, so it was clear that. Glenn, Glenn Ford pushed back on on uh, what they were trying to to do, and you know got penalized for it. 
And, you know, the pilots were trying to, you know, because they reported it, they were trying to be told they didn't see what they saw. So I just thought that was related to his uh, his um, comment. Oh, no, it, it certainly is. Uh, I, I'm glad you brought that to my attention. I was not familiar with that film, but it looks like exactly the kind of film that I'd enjoy. Thank you, Mike. I think you'd enjoy it as you know, being, you know, being you have an interest. in. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I definitely will subject. check it out. Thank you and very I, much. I never saw it repeated again. That was the only time that one time that I saw it uh, broadcast. Yeah, well, I'm going to see if maybe I can find it on VHS or something somewhere. Uh, That's great stuff, Mike. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Still to come, we have a lot to get to. Are we in the new golden age of radio? We'll explore that. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is shockingly acting foolish, in my opinion. And uh, a very interesting debate on uh, CNN Plus, on the new Chris Wallace show. We also have, um, oh, I'm really looking forward to this. Michael Uslan is going to be here. Michael Usman has produced all of the Batman movies, from the Michael Keaton Batman, Christian Bale, to the latest one with Robert Pattinson. He's going to join me uh, coming up in about a half hour. I can't wait to talk about movies and Batman and a whole bunch of other things with him. That's going to be a great conversation. Uh, This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until next hour, in the words of the late, great Bob Grant, your influence counts. So make sure you use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Um, very pleased to to be here. And um, I am here until 5. Then you get to hear the WABC Early News with Deb Valentine. And uh, coming up from 6 to 10, you got the Bernie and Sid show. So uh, it's going to be a full and action-packed day of programming here on 77 W. ABC uh, saw this great op-ed in the Washington Post. I'm going to link to it right now. I think you need a subscription uh, to the Washington Post to to read it. Uh, Facebook.com slash Morano fan, though. Sometimes they let you read a few for free. Uh, but if you want to try and read it, Facebook.com slash Morano fan. It is by... Uh, let me get the author's name. It is by someone I was unfamiliar with. Daryl Austin, and uh, Daryl Austin is a journalist based in Utah. He's freelance. He writes for a whole bunch of publications. And he has the headline in the Washington Post, is radio in a second golden age? Here's what the first one looked like. 
And he spends a lot of time going in to what happened on the radio on October 30th, 1938. Now, I'm not convinced that everything about the War of the Worlds, Orson Welles incident that he rehashes here, which is mostly the conventional wisdom, I'm not convinced that that's 100% accurate. But whatever, that's the perception. And his broader point is still on the money that radio very well may be in the midst of a new golden age. And they talk about the War of the Worlds incident and all sorts of all sorts of things like that. Uh, Murray Horwitz, who's a Tony Award winning playwright, writes something like that could only happen during the golden age of radio. He added the 30s through the mid 50s are the one time when the whole nation gathered together and listened to programs every night. Well, in New York, that's what they're doing in the overnights. Everybody's listening to me who's awake right now. That's fine. People believed the news and shared in a collective experience like never before or since. Those are the words of Horowitz. Until now. The audience numbers might not quite match those of the mid-20th century. But with more Americans than ever listening to audio books and podcasts in addition to radio, audio-only formats have made a massive comeback in recent years, suggesting that we might be entering into a second golden age of radio, or at least audio. And, you know, it's funny that this article basically phrases it the same way that Chad Lopez did when he was here. Remember when Chad was here a few weeks ago? I asked him, what do you see as the future of radio? He stopped me. And said, we don't look at it as radio, we look at it as audio. And sometimes people will get that audio on a radio, sometimes they'll get it on a smart speaker, sometimes they'll get it on their mobile phone. And in this Washington Post piece, they write, podcasts such as Serial, The Daily, The Shrink Next Door, This American Life, have revitalized audio storytelling. That's the word from Sandy uh, Susie Schultz, who's a radio historian and the former executive director of the Museum of Broadcast Communications. And podcasts and audiobooks are only the beginning. You have these immersive audio-only works of fiction, like The Sandman. You have true crime dramas, like Killing Hollywood, The Cotton Club Murder. They've all proven compelling enough to entice stars to get back into the medium. Nick Jonas of the Jonas Brothers lent his voice last year to Apple's calls. Kate Winslet and Jake Gyllenhaal, Jamie Lee Curtis, Meryl Streep, they've all read iconic roles for auto Audible. Audible is basically doing in podcast form what the old-fashioned radio shows did on radio. John Lithgow, who recently narrated the Audible original The Guilty, said audio dramas today are reviving the great golden age of the 30s and 40s when radio was right up there with movies as an essential entertainment. Now, my question for you is, is he right? And is that question asked in the headline of this op-ed? Again, you can read it at facebook.com slash moranofan. Is it right? Are we entering radio slash audios New Golden Age, 800-848-WABC. That is the question. 
Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. Now, in many respects, it is different than it was in the 1940s and 50s. In fact, because the media is so splintered and because you have so many options of what to listen to on the radio and in podcast form. By the way, I hope you'll listen to this show on podcast form and subscribe to it. Just search The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano wherever you get your podcast. And if you can, I'd appreciate it if you left a five-star review and a positive comment. That'll help more people find us and make it so that we're mentioned in articles like this in the future. By 1940, the Census Bureau estimates 82.8% of American households owned a radio, many of which tuned into the same programs day and night. Evenings were family affairs. Parents and children gathered around the radio to listen to the latest episode of Suspense, Lux Radio Theater, Sherlock Holmes, or the comedy of Bob Hope. Many women kept their afternoons open for their favorite soap operas. Children raced home from school to see if Dick Tracy had gotten his man. Jim Carlton, who's the interim director of the Museum of Broadcast Communications in Chicago said the percentage of Americans who listen to almost any radio program of the time is vastly greater than anything the country is watching on Netflix today. That's how dominant radio is. Neil Grauer, a radio historian in Baltimore, said the progression of modern American entertainment all came about through radio. Radio paved the way for sketch comedy shows like Saturday Night Live, evening talk programs, night show. It also ushered in countless technological advancements, uh, government oversight divisions like the FCC. Many of the big TV shows of the 50s through the 80s began on radio. Perry Mason, whose line it is in anyway, Gunsmoke, Adventures of Superman, I Love Lucy, the radio, 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 radio. Even Meet the Press started out as a radio show. Before radio... If you wanted entertainment, you had to go to a local dance or a vaudeville house, the movie theater, or gather around a record player. After radio, everyone was able to be entertained within the walls of their own home. Do you think we're there again? I got to be honest, and maybe I'm seeing the world through rose-colored glasses because I am a radio talk show host and a uh, podcaster. And uh, I didn't get a chance to record a new episode of um, The Racket Report this week, but I've got some good stuff planned for next week and something that is really going to surprise people the following week. Sir, please subscribe to that podcast as well. It's called The Racket Report. It's all about organized crime. I have to tell you, I think we might be in the midst of a new radio slash audio golden age. What say you? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Dave is calling from the Buckeye State. Hello, Dave. Now it's Jay. Jay! Uh, my yeah. my sympathies, Jay. Yeah, but listen, I think that radio is still a relevant medium, and it's keeping up with the times. Your, um, your last guest, I thought he was interested in his point of view. I didn't agree with it. I, well, actually, I did agree with a lot of things that he said, but it, I was, but it was more important the things that he didn't say about Judge Jackson, the fact that she was uh, very lenient on with pedophile cases, which was a big strike against her, and she should have she should have been she should not have been um, appointed. All right, well, I, that's your view, Dave uh, Jay. Thank you, Ron in Michigan. Hello. 
Hi, Frank. Frank, if your if your assessment of radio being coming a a new golden age, then you have to agree that is it is dominated by fascist conservative right wing radio. I'm I do a, not a, agree with that. Well, let me give you an, a, 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 a progressive radio only has a few hours during the day, and then they have broad rebroadcast. Whereas uh, right wing fascist conservative, okay, they have okay, twenty four okay. hours a day. Run, run, twenty four. Run, hang on. Do you know what the most listened to radio show in this country is? Um, no. Uh, the most listened to radio show in this country by far is All Things Considered. It has 14.7 million weekly listeners. The, um, would you characterize All Things Considered as right-wing fascist conservative radio? No. Okay. No, uh, but I don't listen to it. All right, well, I, don't listen to I, it. I mean, I can't, I can't help it if you don't listen to it. But it is the most listened to radio show in the country. Well, to further my point. Well, no, but your point is is pointless because you, you're saying that radio is dominated by right-wingerism, and yet the number one show in the country is not a right-wing show at all. I'll bet you, I'll bet you of all your callers, Frank, I'll bet you not even 10% of them listen to NPR's um, uh all, cons- all things considered, okay? I'll bet you that. But, <clears throat> you know, I- I'm not saying I'm right all the time, but uh, that's my opinion. And the uh, the fact that uh, overnight radio is totally dominated by fascist right-wing radio, it, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exclude you, Frank. I'm Thank gonna exclude you. Yes, you Excu- because- exclude me and the 17.8 share that we're doing in New York. Go ahead. <clears throat> but... You're an exception. You are an exception. I, you know, I, I cannot get on most progressive, you know, left-wing shows because well, it, of my it, views. So it sounds like your issue should be with the progressive stations. They need to it clean should. up their act and be a little bit more like the right-wing fascist stations, Ron. Um, and I think you, you really missed my point. Maybe I was unclear. Maybe I was. Uh, what I'm saying is that when we talk about radio, it's not only over-the-air delivery systems like this one, but it's also podcasts and people that listen to The Daily. The Daily is very popular. Serial is very popular. Uh, a lot of these podcasts are very popular. I listen to uh, a podcast all about Atlantic City, the Do For A Win podcast. Uh, I, that's not right-wing. I, there's uh, Conan O'Brien's podcast is very popular. That's not right-wing. Uh, you got Johnny Russo's podcast, Hollywood Godfather. That's not right wing. So that's that. If we're talking about an audio slash radio golden age, it's baloney. It's baloney. Are there a lot of very successful conservative talk shows? Absolutely. And you know why? Be- because many of them are very talented. Um, I will continue with your answers to this question. Are we in the midst of a new golden age? But first, I really have to point out the foolishness of marjorie taylor green um jimmy kimmel on his show uh which is on abc made a wise crack at the expense of marjorie taylor green this is what jimmy kimmel said that are uh, in the house like marjorie taylor green this woman clan mom is especially upset <laughs> with the three republican senators who said they'll vote yes on judge katanji brown jackson who's Nominated for the Supreme Court, she tweeted, Murkowski, Collins, and Romney are pro-pedophile. They just voted for KBJ. Wow, where is Will Smith when you really need him, huh? That's the joke. 
Where is Will Smith when you really need him? Now, we had a, 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 somebody that didn't like the coverage of Ukraine that I've been doing saying he wanted to do a Will Smith to me. Now, you know what my reaction to that is? Nothing. I shrugged. Well, Marjorie Taylor Greene has filed a complaint with the Capitol Police in D.C. Give me a break. Does anybody really think that Jimmy Kimmel or Will Smith were going to go up to Marjorie Taylor Greene and smack her? No, of course not. It's ridiculous. It's a joke. We are now in a in an era in 21st century America where we are reporting jokes to the police. This is capital I insane. We're also going to do the uh, $1,000 minute. We're going to do it a little early. We're going to probably do it in about uh, eight minutes because we have, um, we have um, you know, uh, a really good interview coming up with Michael Uslan. But uh, I want to take you back in time to yesterday, uh, a gentleman that ended up winning $100. There was a question about one of my colleagues. This was the question. What former New York City police commissioner has a son who is a WABC radio talk show host? Ray Kelly. Now, I heard him say Ray Kelly, but a lot of people have been saying that he said Greg Kelly. Let me hear just the answer. Ray Kelly. Now, I still think it's Ray Kelly. but Molly, I do, too. Molly said she thought it was Greg Kelly. No, I always thought it was Ray Kelly from the beginning. And so did I, and I was listening. Yeah, me too. I, I think he did say Ray Kelly. Molly, Ray you disagree. Kelly. Yeah, I disagree. I hear I hear Greg now. Um, unfortunately, I have to I have to go with the audience on this one. Well, meaning the we don't know how many there are, but there's a lot of people that say it was Greg, not Ray. You mean, that, those are the folks that you're going with. That it, I am with the Greg Greg oh. army at this moment. Well, you very rare. It's very rare that both Matt and I are wrong. All right. Uh, the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. We're going to do the $1,000 minute right now so that we have some time to talk with Michael Usland. 1-800-BE the seventh caller right now. And if you can answer 10 trivia questions in in 60 seconds, then you will be the proud recipient of $1,000. Call right now, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Go ahead and call right now uh, because it is time for... Well, get that ready. Let me say hello to Vic in Bergen. Vic, give me your two cents on this. Uh, well, I, I was going to comment on the, on the success of radio. Please, yes. That, yeah, I think that, um, um, I mean, radio will never replace, you know, Pixar and Disney and, and so on. But I think people are hungry for political opinions, social and cultural, and, uh, you know, sort of like analysis of society, which you don't get on television. You don't get on cable, and I think people are really uh, so hungry, and that and that's what you know Rush Limbaugh, and that's what uh, um, you know many people on ABC do, and, and and so on. I think that um, uh, the um, conservative rate, you know, the guy was talking about you know fascist this and fascist that. That's nonsense. It's basically conservatives are much more adept. Vic, I got to cut you off just because we're running out of time here, and it is time for The Other Side of Midnight presents It's the $1,000 Minute. 
Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. All right, thank you, Chris Libertini. You know the rules. 10 questions in 60 seconds. Let's meet Oliver in Staten Island. Hello, Oliver. Hello, Frank. Good to be with you this morning. Oliver, you are up on this game, right? You know what to do. I do. Okay. I have a little issues, though. I, I, I think that you should have a little ding bell. But, uh, th- that's right. We'll work on that for Monday. I'll assign that to Matt for Monday. Let's get started because okay. we're running out of time here. Okay. Um, how many hours are in a day? 24. How many dwarfs did Snow White associate with? Seven. Who was the first man to walk on the moon? John Glenn. No, unfortunately, it was Neil Armstrong. Neil Armstrong. John Glenn never walked on the moon, unfortunately. Oliver, I'm going to put you on hold. Molly's going to give you a consolation prize. We'll talk with the man who brought Batman to cinema straight ahead. Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. 77 WABC. great is that song how catchy is that song i am willing to bet it is the first time our guest this morning has ever been introduced with that song that's from swamp thing the animated series from 30 years ago which i was a big fan of and i don't i don't think i've seen the show in 30 years but sometimes that catchy theme uh, which obviously is a takeoff on wild thing is still in my head and i still find myself singing the lyrics 30 years later. The reason it is such a unique song to introduce our next guest is because Michael Uslan is a film producer who has produced each of the Batman movies, and he's the author of the new book, Batman's Batman, a memoir from Hollywood, Land of Bilk and Money. Michael, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. I'm a big fan of yours and certainly a big Batman fan. Vice versa, Frank. Great to be with you. Now, um, I love your story of how you brought back Batman to movie screens, and I'm sure you're tired of telling it, but I'm going to ask you to tell it again, so get ready. But before we get there, tell folks how you fell in love with Batman as a character. How were you first exposed to the Batman story, and what about his story and this character resonated with you so much as a young person? Well, easily, when I was about seven, eight years old, I discovered this superhero that was different from Superman and the Hulk and all these other guys because he had no superpowers. I contended always that his greatest superpower was his humanity. And my God, did I did I identify with him in my heart of hearts when I was eight? I really believed if I studied hard, worked out real hard, and if my pop bought me a cool car, I could be this guy. And um, so it was that identification, number one. Number two is he has the greatest rogues gallery of supervillains in history, inarguably the greatest with the Joker. And as Stan Lee once told me, he said, Michael, the greatest, most long-lasting superheroes are the ones with the greatest supervillains because ultimately 
It's the supervillains who define the superheroes. Um, plus, he had the most primal, gut-wrenching origin story of watching his parents slaughtered when he was a kid in the street. And finally, it was the magic of the car. And, and those things added up, and that was it for me. I became the boy who loved Batman. Were you first exposed to Batman in the comics, in the serials, or in the 1960s TV show with Adam West? Absolutely the comic books. I was a comic book fiend. I w- I'm a fanboy. I'm a comic book geek. Um, my mom said I learned to read from comic books before I was four. <laughs> By the time I turned 18, I had a collection of over 30,000 comic books dating back to 1936 that filled my parents' entire garage. Wow. And I went to the first Comic-Con ever held on the planet Earth in a flea bag hotel downtown New York when I was 13. And I, I was just comic book geek all the way. Uh, love it. Now, what was your take on the 1960s television show? Certainly, it was a lot different from many aspects of the comic and the subsequent cinematic versions of Batman, which you obviously had a hand in crafting. I couldn't wait for months for the show to come on the air. I was so excited. The night, it was a cold night, January 66. I'm in my downstairs den. The show comes on, and I am simultaneously thrilled and then horrified by what I'm seeing. Because while the car was cool, it was in color, the sets were extravagant, um, it hit me about 20 minutes in, oh my God, this is a comedy. They're, uh, they're making a joke out of Batman. They are laughing at my Batman, and that just killed me. So that night in our downstairs den, I made a vow, uh, like young Bruce Wayne once made a vow except he did his over the bloody bodies of his parents. My parents were up, were safe upstairs in the kitchen. And, and I vowed that somehow, some way, I would show the world the true Batman, the creature of the night created in 1939 by Bob Kane and Bill Finger, the one who stalked these deeply disturbed criminals and try to find a way to erase from the collective consciousness of the world culture these three new words, pow, Zap and wham. So you were not, once you had seen the series, you were not an addict. You were not obsessed with uh, Adam West and Burt Ward. You didn't appreciate the campy charm of it. I did not at all. I was a serious comic book fanatic. I had met Bill Finger, the co-creator of Batman. He told me how that, how it was created and why, and that it was meant to be dark. It was meant to be grim. And um, I, I just wanted to honor the creators and the creator's vision. Well, uh, and I think you've done that in spades. Now, Batman has got to be one of the most successful movie franchises in history. I mean, I, I think maybe aside from James Bond, I, I can't think of something that's a more commercially bankable venture these days. It's difficult for folks to imagine in the early to mid 80s, Batman was fa- was considered far from a sure thing in terms of bankability at the box office. In a nutshell, I know you've written now two books where you go through this story, and I want to encourage folks to get them, and especially the latest one, Batman's Batman. Can you explain to folks your efforts to bring Batman back, how you went about doing it, and how you ultimately were successful? Yeah, I can. And you got it's hard to understand this story unless you put it in the context of its time, Frank. Um, I was a kid in my 20s when I bought the rights to Batman from DC Comics. Now today, for, for how much? Impossible. For how much? A whole bunch. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I had to raise money privately. I had six months to do it, and on October third, nineteen seventy nine, 
signed the contract, acquired the rights to Batman, went out to Hollywood, figuring, okay, there's going to be a slam dunk with Batman in my back pocket. They'll all see the potential for sequels and animation and toys and games. And I was turned down by every single studio, every single mini-major in Hollywood. They told me it was the worst idea they ever heard. They said, Michael, you're nuts. You can't make dark superheroes. You can't make serious comic book movies. You can't make a movie out of an old TV series. That's never been done. So as a result of that, Frank, as that kid in my 20s, from the time we bought the rights to Batman until our first movie finally got made, 10 years. Wow. 10 years of rejection. And it was like a human endurance contest. (laughs) I can't imagine. I mean, and that's one of the things that you chronicle in your book, Batman's Batman, uh, the some of the tools that you need uh, to get to under to deal with the wherewithal and the rigors of the process of making a major motion picture. We're going to touch upon some of them. Uh, One of the first chapters in the book, one of the first P's that you talk about and the book focuses on the 12 P's is an aspect that I think can really help people in any profession, and I certainly know if it's true of trying to carve out a radio career, you talked about, or the 13 P's of producing, not 12, I didn't mean to diminish one, but you you focus on the passion. To work 10 years on a project that no one seems to want, you really do need a great deal of passion, don't you? It is imperative, and you cannot possibly do it without it. And that's why, you know, every year I go back and I teach three weeks at Indiana University's media school uh, courses on the business of producing motion pictures. And I explain this to the students. Matt, when you've got a passion coursing through your veins, it's virtually burning you. Um, To be able to follow that passion, get up off the damn couch, be proactive. Don't wait for somebody else to do it for you. Don't have some misguided sense of entitlement that the world owes you something or is going to come to you. You got to get up and make it happen. And the only way you're going to do it is number one, you better have a high threshold for frustration because doors, I promise every, everyone in my college class, doors are going to slam in your face. Promise you. When they do, I learned you only have two choices. You go home and cry about it or you go back and knock again and knock again and knock again. The Batman movie franchise was built on my bloody knuckles. And my inspiration for this was my dad. My dad was a stonemason. My father had to drop out of school in Bayonne, New Jersey, when he was 16 to help his family survive the Depression. He worked six days a week till he was 80, got up before dawn every day. Uh, Didn't matter if it was snowing or 95-degree New Jersey humidity. He kept going. (laughs) But my father loved what he did. He was an old-world artist, a craftsman and made these beautiful fireplaces and homes out of brick and marble and stone and cement. And when you grow up in a house like that and you see someone getting up with a smile on his face every day and can't wait to get to work, how could you not want that for yourself? And, and that was my dad was my inspiration for the passion. Uh, one of the other chapters that I think most people don't necessarily think about when they think of successful Hollywood producers like you 
that I found really interesting is the prayer. And you asked the question before answering it, how do you inculcate faith, commitment, and perseverance in a person? How do you do that? I'm sure there are people listening to us right now that might be experiencing some professional adversity, some uh, some personal adversity. When all seems lost, how do you drive yourself to keep going just through strength of will and power of faith? Well, part of it is I was lucky enough to have parents who my mom and dad sacrificed everything for me and my brother. Even though they had a geeky, weird little son, <laughs> they catered to my special needs, uh, my interests as well. Um, they gave us a great education. And my mom was the one who taught us, you know, once you make a commitment, it's a matter of honor. And you, you follow that commitment. You see it through to the end. Yes, there may be pain involved, but it is your duty. It is your honor at stake, and you see it through. So that was our background when we were growing up. And um, my partner, Ben Melnicker, who was my dad's age and was a legend in the movie business, starting with MGM in late 1939, he was an incredible man. Ben said to me one day, he said, Michael, um, when things are at their worst, when the world is crashing down on your head, when your project is, seems to be crumbling, what you need to do is say, this is the best thing that could happen to me because, and then fill in the blank. And I have used that, Frank, ever since. I've taught my kids to use it, and it works like a charm. Well, it's certainly good advice, not only to folks wanting to get into Hollywood, but for folks in any profession. So um, that 1989 Michael Keaton film with Jack Nicholson, and it, it's uh, just terrific. Kim Basinger, a wonderful cast, but it's a wonderfully made film. How did it ultimately get made if no studio wanted to make it? How did you convince Warner Brothers to take, take a chance on that? The answer lies in a young genius named Tim Burton. This young man came into our lives circa 1986 uh, as a Disney animator. And uh, he had done uh, Beetlejuice. And then they showed me the final cut of Pee-wee's Big Adventure. And I said, I've never seen a more creative marriage of production design and direction in my life. Uh, I had three lunches with Tim. I was sure this was the right guy. And it was. He figured it out, Frank. He had the big idea. When I say big idea... This was a revolutionary breakthrough idea that would change the course of Hollywood and movie history. He said, if we are going to do the first dark and serious comic book superhero movie, and we want the entire world that has never read a comic book to take this seriously and suspend their disbelief, Michael, this movie cannot be about Batman. I go, oh my God, what is this crazy man saying? He said, this movie must be about Bruce Wayne. And if we can show a Bruce Wayne so driven, so obsessed to the point of being psychotic, then audiences will suspend their disbelief and say, okay, that's a guy who would get dressed up in a bat costume and fight a guy like the Joker. And he was absolutely right. Look at the Marvel movies. Look at Iron Man. Those really shouldn't be entitled Iron Man. They should really be entitled Tony Stark. Right. The, the Spider-Man movie should really be entitled Peter Parker. That's all the genius of Tim Burton, whose corollary to that was the essential need for world building and that Gotham City had to be the third most important character in the movie from the opening frames because if audiences didn't believe in Gotham City, they would never then believe in a Batman or a Joker. 
Needless to say, if you didn't care for the campiness of the 1960s program, I'm sure you weren't crazy about the 1940s little Batman serials that that aired before films, were you? Well, I got to tell you, everything in its time. uh, At the time, the Batman TV series was about to come on the air. They re-released the original 1943 movie serial for six and a half hours. It was showing at a theater in New York. And me and my friend Bobby, uh, my parents let us take the bus up, and we sat through six and a half hours of that 43 <laughs> Batman movie. Um, and and uh, about halfway through, the cringing really started. Uh, but, you know, they were working on no budget. Right. And um, we kind of understood everything in its time. And, and, and there is I find something still charming about it. And uh, I thought it was I thought it was interesting. If you I know I'm not a, a, exactly asking an objective source here, but uh, perhaps I'm asking the best possible person. If you were to pick of all the actors who played Batman, who would you say? Pulled it off the best. Who's your favorite Batman actor? Well, first, can I tell you who my favorite child is? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that to you. Um, actually, the it's a, it's. I claim it's the wrong question. The the correct question is who's your favorite Bruce Wayne? Because the Bruce Waynes are what is a hundred percent different mm. every time a new actor comes in. We could not have achieved my dream come true, Batman 89, the first dark and serious comic book superhero movie, if it wasn't for Michael Keaton. Being able to pull off that Tim Burton thing about showing a driven, obsessed Bruce Wayne that audiences would believe could become this guy. In the same regard, um, when you look at the work of another genius named Christopher Nolan and the performance he crafted with Christopher with Christian Bale, to try to convince audiences that Bruce Wayne could be real today. He could be a real young man today suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome on a lost horizon journey of self-discovery. And I think Christian Bale nails it for every generation. But then if you look at today's movie, we've got the Batman by uh, another genius named Matt Reeves. You've got a Robert Pattinson playing a young Bruce Wayne who's kind of just been starting out. And he has a long way to go to evolve before he becomes the Dark Knight. And at this moment, Bruce Wayne is pretty much lost among his thirst for vengeance uh, to atone for the murder of his parents. It is a fascinating psychological uh, look at a very young Batman who's still making mistakes, still tripping over his own feet, but is one of the world's greatest detectives. If you were to pick the Batman picture that most closely adhered to the story in the comic book, what would you say that film is? Not necessarily the best or your favorite, but the one that was the best reflection of the Batman of the comic book. Well, understand this. The comic book has changed over the decades, Mm -hmm. and we've seen interpretations of Batman from one extreme to the other. When I was a little kid, it was the adventures of Batman is a baby, bat baby, bat genie, bat robot, super Batman, um, alien Batman. Uh, but then later on, he returned to his original 1939 darker roots uh, as a masked manhunter. Um, later on, he became so dark, it was almost vampiric when Frank Miller did the Dark Knight Returns graphic novel uh, in 1986. It transformed the entire industry. So I look at the different movies 
Frank, as reflecting different eras of Batman in the comic books. So to me, Batman 1989 best reflected the Batman of mm. 1939 to early 1940. Um, the second movie, Batman Returns, was more the darker Batman of the 1990s comic books. Um, after that, I would say it was more, well, the George Clooney thing was a return to the campy uh, pow zap wham um, fuzzy boy next door kind of Bruce Wayne. Uh, enough said about that. And um, then but you, you were, I, I mean, it, it sounds like that doesn't necessarily hold the same place in your heart that some of the other films do. Uh, you were a, a producer on that film as well, though, right? That version of uh, Batman and Robin? Not Batman, I was executive, yeah, Batman and Robin. I, I was executive producer on that movie. True. Um, I did not like the fact that they were taking it back as almost an homage to the 66 TV series. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was catering too much to licensing and toys and Happy Meals. And um, uh, again, that was one of the times Ben said to me, this is the best thing that can happen to me because, and I had to say, well, because somebody's going to get bitten on the tuchus a little bit from this. And the next time around, we're going to get a really great, dark and serious Batman movie. And the next one up was Christopher Nolan and the Dark Knight trilogy. So it was worth whatever pain came with that. I haven't seen the new film yet, uh, but I've heard great things about it. I'm looking forward to seeing it. It's not for lack of enthusiasm. It's, you know, having a four month old, uh, having the uh, the two hours uh, to sit in one sitting and watch the film. That has become uh, a, a little bit of a fleeting thing. How happy are you with this new film with Robert Pattinson? It sounds like you're pretty enthusiastic about it. I'm somewhere north of ecstatic. Um, finally, I've been waiting. I've been uh, telling the studio since 1989, we've got to show everybody Batman is the world's greatest detective. Now we got it 33 years later, um, and it was worth the wait. What Matt Reeves has crafted here with an amazing, perfect cast uh, and storyline is, um, well, is a movie whose it's a crime noir. It's a crime noir drama. And the cinema antecedents for this movie is not a former Batman movie or Marvel movie. The antecedents in cinema for this movie is Silence of the Lamb, um, Seven, The Usual Suspects, Chinatown, The French Connection. This is a complete redefinition of what a comic book movie, what a superhero movie can be. And um, my God, it is just wonderful. And anyone who's a true fan of Batman is recognizing that. Wonderful. Uh, well, that's that's great. Continued uh, continued success with that film. Now, uh, is it you know? Can you understand how some fans might get frustrated, not just with the Batman series, but they've done this with Spider Man as well, where they keep retelling the origin story of Batman? I mean, um, we've seen the origin story now re re created several times in a couple of different ways why not just make a continue the existing story rather than go back to the beginning again and show the origin story here here and that's what uh, matt reese has done in the batman there is no batman origin story retelling there is no origin story of any of the villains in here everybody's out already and everybody's been operational um, but let me tell you something. Every single time you see Robert Pattinson and you see Robert Pattinson's eyes as Bruce Wayne, Batman, 
Um, the origin story pervades this whole thing. You know it's haunting him. You know he's emotionally disturbed by what happened to him as a kid. And that's without having to see it all over again. And that's one of the great successes of this film. Plus, you know, the villains, they are still, with one exception, they're still pretty young. And their own personas are still evolving. So over the course of, of time, I think you're going to see a, a, an amazing evolution of the good guys, the bad guys, and maybe even the Batmobile. Oh, uh, very, very interesting. That's quite a tease. If people just tuning in, we're talking with Michael Uslan. His new book is Batman's Batman, a memoir from Hollywood, land of bilk and honey. I learned in this book that you carry around a photograph of Peter Lorre in your wallet. I, I love Peter Lorre, <laughs> but tell folks why you carry around a picture of Peter Lorre, and can you do a little bit of a Peter Lorre impersonation for us? Uh, that will cost you extra. Um, <laughs> however, this is a story that was told to me. So everybody, I am retelling a story that was told. I am not verifying the facts in this, only that this is the story I was told. And it was told to me by one of the children of one of the stars of Casablanca. Uh, and of course, Peter Lorre was one of the stars of that movie as well. So I was told that Peter's daughter back in the 70s, was a hippie. Um, she was coming back uh, in L.A. on, I think it was the 405, late, very late one night from a party. And all of a sudden, she sees behind her the whirling red lights on an unmarked police car. And she gets pulled over in a very isolated part of the freeway. Uh, there's like one lamppost nearby, but it's pretty dark with the hill going up and uh, along the side. Uh, one cop in uniform gets out. She sees there's another one in the car. He says registration and license. She hands him her wallet and open to her license. And she said, step out of the car. So she gets out of the car. He says, I can't read this here. And he goes around to the uh, hillside. And he says, step around to this side of the car. So she goes around to the side off the highway. And He's looking at her wallet, at her driver's license, and he goes, why do you have a picture of Peter Lorre next to your driver's license? And she said, well, he was my, he was my dad. He goes, what? She goes, yeah, I'm Catherine Lorre, and Peter Lorre is my father. He goes, really? She goes, yeah. And he looked at her and he said, Peter Lorre was my favorite actor of all time. And he folds up the wallet, he hands it to her, he says, Get out of here right now. <laughs> and with that, she gets in her car and she drives off, thinking that that's the end of it. What, but the punchline of the story is that many, many, many months later, it turned out she was brought in to testify at the trial of the Hillside Serial Strangler. And she was the only one he ever let go and one of the only ones who could identify him. Wow. I mean, that is crazy. I mean, we should all carry a photo of Peter Lorre. That is absolutely incredible. I, we're almost out of time. In fact, we're a little bit past the allotted time. But two quick questions I want to ask you, and I do hope you'll come back because I'd love to spend an hour with you talking about movies, talking about your philosophy on life, because I think this is already going to be a better radio show for me having read the 13 Ps that you outline in your book. 
I'm wondering how the foreign box office has changed uh, Hollywood movie making these days. I'm getting I'm guessing that when you made the 1989 uh, version of Batman, there was not a lot of concern about uh, distribution in places like India and China. Whereas I know now the studios make a lot of their money uh, with distribution in those places. How has that changed the films that you're making and the stories that you seek to make? Well, it's changed a lot. Uh, first of all, I remember back in 89, we couldn't figure out why our box office wasn't bigger in places like Japan and France. It, it turned out they did not have Batman comics. They were, they were not familiar with the character. But over the years of the movie franchise, uh, everybody in virtually every country now is familiar with, with the franchise. So the foreign box office has, in effect, picked up uh, over the years. And then with China opening, you know, sadly, at this point in time, they've closed over 50 percent of their theaters due to COVID restrictions. Uh, so there is a limited return um, in China at the moment. But it, it really has changed. And one of the good things I think that's coming out of the globalization of, uh, of movies is a move to make content that is culturally sensitive to the point where it can play everywhere or almost everywhere. How great to be able to, to craft a story and characters that will be received well in China, um, in India, in South America, uh, as, as well as in North America. And instead of just making movies for North American boys who play video games that have lots of explosions mm. and lots of special effects. So I think ultimately it's, it's a very positive thing. I have to ask you about your experience on Swamp Thing. I loved Swamp Thing, and you were played a role in Swamp Thing. Um, I found that to be a really wonderful film. I enjoyed it immensely. What did that mean? What sort of a game changer was that for your career? It was a complete game changer. I had never produced a movie before. I was still in my 20s. I got thrown into the deep end of a pool and told, learn how to swim now. Um, and, and that was the situation. Thank God I was working with a man who became one of my dear friends, Wes Craven, uh, a phenomenal filmmaker, a great human being who wrote and directed it. I miss him dearly. Uh, Wes would go on to do create Nightmare on Elm Street, Scream. Um, we had Adrian Barbeau, who was one of the nicest, most professional people you'd ever want to work with ever. She would come back later and do the voice of Catwoman in some of the Batman cartoons. And one of the classics of the golden age of cinema, Louis Jordan uh, from Gigi and uh, so many great movies. And it was a learning experience for me, Frank. Um, I, I was thrown in and had to figure it all out as I went along. So we had $1.9 million uh, actually to make the movie, which I learned, later learned we should have had $19 million. Um, and I detail some of the problems and some of the craziness that we encountered on that. Uh, but the fire burn scene remains what is considered one of the best fire gag stunt scenes in cinema. I, I mean, I uh, I can absolutely see that being the case. Now, and by the way, uh, do we have your permission to play that song that we played at the beginning of the segment? Does that sound, oh, <laughs> it, it, it makes my heart sing. It makes everything groovy. Uh, Michael Uslan, uh, final question, I promise now. 
is why do you still work so hard? I know a lot of us can relate to uh, producers who struggle to get a dream movie made, to see it come to fruition. The movies you've made have probably made billions of dollars at the box office. I think a lot of us that don't know very much about making motion pictures sort of think that once you get to that level, you can just sort of coast and just sit by the pool all day. You say that you're still working 12, 13 hours a day. Why? What are you doing? It goes back to exactly the question you opened this discussion with, passion. I love what I do. Like my dad loved what he did. Um, my, my brother's an optometrist in Ann Arbor, and on Friday nights he gets to close the office at 5.30 or 6 o'clock, and he doesn't think about work until 9 a.m. on a Monday. I never stop thinking about work. It's with me all the time. Um, it, it, it keeps me passionate. It keeps, I feel it keeps me young. And so many of my friends and relatives have retired now, I, I wouldn't even dream of it. Right now, I'm working on my first ever Broadway show. I am so far out of my comfort zone, it's not even funny. But to push yourself out of your comfort zone, to reinvent yourself periodically, and to take on new challenges and, and rely on people who have experience in areas that you don't, couldn't be more exciting. But they are turning my books the Boy Love Batman and Batman's Batman into a Broadway show. Outstanding. And I couldn't be more excited. Uh, you got to let us know and keep us posted on that. I definitely want to have you back uh, to promote it. I can't wait to see it. Michael Usland, thanks so much for the time this morning. I enjoyed it immensely. I can't wait to do it again. Thanks so much, Frank. It's a pleasure being on WA Beatles C. <laughs> we'll have to send that one to cousin Brucey. If you want to comment, uh, actually, we're not going to have very much time next, but uh, we'll, we will do 15 seconds of fame. If you want to be heard on any subject for 15 seconds, now's the time. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. This is the other side of midnight. Thank you, Andy B. Well, oh, the week has just about come to an end for me. Uh, we do have one last meeting before we can go home, which um, which I hope takes place today. But um, I just received some interesting news a minute ago. You know who's going to be on the Bernie and Sid show today? Have you heard about this? Maybe I'm the last to know. That wouldn't surprise me. You know who the very special guest on the Bernie and Sid show today? New York City Mayor Eric Adams. At 8.05. Uh, so this will be, uh, Eric Adams has been on the show before, but this will be his first time appearing with Bernie and Sid. He was on with John Katsimatidis when John was hosting that show, but this will be his first time with Bernie and Sid. So that should certainly be really very interesting. All right, without further ado, it's time for you to be heard for 15 seconds. Call in at 800-848-9222. It's time for... Other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Evelyn is in Bayonne. Hello, Evelyn. Hi, Frank. 
I work in an elementary school in Jersey City, and the students saw me walk in with my black coat and my Batman pin on. <laughs> that was the word all throughout the school all day. Miss Rosie's wearing a Batman pin. So Batman is timeless. Thanks, Frank. It certainly is. Steve in Manalapan. Yes, uh, pet new, new pet nutrition store in Manalapan, Route 9 North. Good boy, good girl. Dog wash and grooming, pet nutrition on Route 9 North of Manalpin. Thank you. Victor in Manhattan. Uh, there's an old saying that you'll find just as many sinners at your local church as you will down at Murphy's Tavern. That's why I'd rather be down at Murphy's Tavern. <laughs> Frankie in Glendale. Hey, good morning, Frank. Did you hear about the guy who was stealing hay? No. He made bail. <laughs> hey. Harry in Mount Vernon. Bernie and Sid, ask Eric Adams about the uh, fictitious white supremacist organization called the Blue Order with the flyers that were put in the District 1 mailbox in 1991 that ruined the uh, career of uh, Lizette LeBron. Pete and Staten Island. Hi, Frank. I want to wish out one of your biggest listeners, Judy, out in Jersey, happy 75th birthday from all the people from 77 WABC. Joe in Ronkonkoma. Hey, Frank, great show. I want to wish everybody a happy Palm Sunday and a shout-out to Frankie from Glendale. Have a good one, Frankie. And finally, Fred in Yonkers. Hey, Frank, did you hear about this guy in Europe that got 70 booster shots? That's the bad news. The good news is his mechanic said he could throw away his jumper cables. All right, that slams the lid on things for today. That's it. Calling me a week. And uh, I am uh, going to be back Sunday morning at 8 a.m. on the Cats Roundtable. Stay tuned for the WABC Early News with Deborah Valentine. Mayor Eric Adams coming up on the Bernie and Sid Show. Frank Moreno, good day.